looks like some team negative one stuff on uh, ESP is starting to uh, show up. Really? Yeah. I had not heard. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I can't look at it right now, but uh, there's one thing here called the work print version zero, and then here's uh, color-corrected version 1A. I think it's obviously probably very early. But just from the thumbnails, it looks pretty good. Have you have you looked at negative one? Yep, I have. I've got that al- alongside the Harmy. Um, well, that's what I was going to ask you. Do you? Uh, I got a feeling. What's your feeling? Do 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 you do you uh, do you like negative one over Harmy? I don't think so. Um, but I'm like I, I still feel like the the one that I want is still somewhere in between because negative one's got a lot of grain and a lot of softness. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes the colors seem more correct to me, even than some of the Harmony stuff, because the Harmony will use the HD stuff from the Blu-ray, and there's only so much I think feel like you can do to bring the Blu-ray back from where they took it, color and light-wise. Uh, but really, I don't fret that much about A New Hope. It's not the one that I care about. I feel like Harmony's is pretty darn good. Negative mm-hmm. one is fine if you don't have Harmony. Like, um, but yeah, Empire is the one I care about, and. And that one, it's the least least damaged by the special editions. Uh, they still messed up the colors in the Blu-ray, um, so I'll still look at the uh, the Team Negative One one. But what I'm really looking for is the like official with a lot more money behind it, with more access to better source material. Hopefully, uh, uh, you know, an original trilogy Blu-ray release, non-special edition from the source. That's my. I'm still holding a hope for that. Yeah. I don't know. I got this weird feeling it might happen. I, I have absolutely no evidence uh, about that, but I don't know. It's it, it's strange, to, especially to think about in Disney, the world of Disney, where they find a way to wring every dollar out of every property. This feels like, I'm not, I don't want to say low-hanging fruit. It's not as simple as saying, like, okay, here's Blackbeard's Ghost, now available on Blu-ray. Obviously, it's going to take some work. But I mean, boy, this is the kind of thing you could have events around. This could be this could be as big as the whatever the nineteen ninety seven was that was that the first special edition when this came out? Yeah, I think so. Is that what they called it then? I remember going and seeing that in the theater and thinking it was cool. But uh, I think this could be an event. You know, it's, uh, you could put them out. You could put them out one at a time. Do them all together. Yeah, it, that's that's the reason I'm I'm actually thinking about it now is because. Uh, Looks as how Disney has taken over. It's right, and it's just a you know, it's a cost benefit analysis thing. Even like worst case scenario, I feel like they wait until seven, eight, and nine are done, and then do the box set. Uh, and oh, and by the way, in the box set is the original ones, maybe alongside right. the special editions, or whatever. Like whatever you know, but like that's that's the worst case. The best case scenario is as attention flags after episode eight, they in between eight and nine they uh, release original trilogy high def versions just because because i right. know a lot of people will buy it you could even charge a lot of money for it you know we don't care we'll buy it um it just mm-hmm. seems like it seems like a gimme it seems like it uh it has to happen if it can happen i don't know if you heard this um moises did an interview with one of the guys from negative one i put it in show notes yep i have that I queued know, up. He, yeah I, I it was he sounds like really uh like a you know like a really nice dorky guy it was it was an interesting interview so help me out with this, but the goal of negative one, so Harmy, the goal of Harmy's extended, we're talking about Star Wars, <laughs> Harmy's was to take the highest quality version 
uh, available that most closely matches what went on the screen in 1977. So if they could find... Or to make such a thing, because sometimes there is no highest quality version that matches, so they take the elements of the highest quality version and combine them with elements of lower quality version to get a final frame that has the most high quality elements and that looks the most like the original. That's insane. I didn't realize they were doing that. Yeah, individual frames have elements from different sources in them. And they're working, at least with, well, so, so with Harmy, there's some stuff they could get off the Blu-ray, some things they could get off LaserDisc, and other things were coming off of what? Just uh, prints that, that they had, or what, where was it coming from? The DV, one of the DVD releases had a heavily compressed, crappy, uh, non-special edition uh, version of the movies on them. So like you, you, but a terrible, a terrible print. It was so, it's so ugly. It's, I think it was like much more heavily compressed than the other ones. And yeah, and it looks like a mess. I think that one is the, uh, gout George, George's original unaltered trilogy. Um, so laser disc is arguable, arguable whether the laser disc or the heavily compressed, uh, original trilogy on the special edition DVD is better or worse quality. Um, but yeah, then you got the Blu-ray, which is the only HD version of anything. Um, and then I su- I think they also have sources from when it aired on cable television at various times that you should mm-hmm. look through the, the Harmony list. It's a huge list of sources that you wouldn't, uh, wouldn't occur to you offhand, but what they're just looking for is wherever they can find it. And then Team Negative One, I think, is just from the, uh, I don't remember if it's more than one uh, print. It's not from a negative. It's from, it's from a print, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's not a negative, and that's part of the problem. And you know, I think you might enjoy this interview because it goes into stuff I I didn't know about, like the difference between getting a Technicolor um, print, not a negative, but a print struck at this certain time, versus this other kind of stock they use. That like I guess the colors get retained better over time because I guess the Technicolor ones that are out there are either very damaged because they've been around for so long, or they they're suffering from a kind of ironically enough a kind of pink and purple fade thing. Yep. Not this not dissimilar from what they deliberately did a few mm-hmm. years later, I guess. Um so how would you distinguish? So so the the goal of Harmony is to get, you know, as the highest quality version of what it would look like in nineteen seventy seven. The distinction is, I guess, with negative one, they want it to even like down to very much color temperature, grain. Like what it would look like. I mean, how would you, what's the main distinction between the two? I, I don't think, I think they're both going for the same end result, which is we want it to look like if you were to try, have a time machine and go back to 1977 and go to the highest quality movie theater in the entire world and sit down and watch Star Wars in 1977 in a movie theater. That's what we want. So, to make. so, so yeah. So, I mean, like the, the, the seemingly obvious part that must be stated is so no Han Solo you know, making, you know, walking on Java's tail and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So obviously no, no, no special edition stuff, but in addition, they want it to look like a brand new print that was just made for the theatrical release of this new movie called Star Wars. Right. And so, right. uh, obviously you can't go back in time and any, any of those prints that were shown are, you know, it's gone. It's like playing vinyl. Like every time you play that print, you're adding like scratches and dust and other things and then just the years pass if you keep that print around and the colors change and fade or whatever so you can't can't really go back again but they're trying to recapture that using whatever means necessary and so negative one is our you know our source material is going to be actual movies that were shown or prints that were made or whatever and then harmy is going by uh commercial releases of these movies in various forms, laser okay, disc, DVD, right. cable television. But I'm sure if you gave Harmy, uh, uh, you know, 
a bunch of prints and and he could figure out how to get them scanned like he'll take sources from anywhere but i think feel like they're both going for the same thing and then it's just a question of whose memory of what what should this have looked like because like you said there's different kinds of prints if you went to different movie theaters in 1977 for star wars you might see very different things depending on how it was printed what generation it was how damaged the the thing was and then same thing for the re-release in 1979 or whatever so there is no one true version of this everyone is trying to recapture what they remember and you know people are old so they don't really remember that well so the only the only real right. debate is it's not like they have different goals it's just like well i remember it like this well i remember it like that this looks, looks more like star wars to me you know mm-hmm. i just uh, sent you a link to a <clears throat> actually a nice thing on facebook that the um that harmy wrote saying basically team negative one just released their star wars 35 millimeter silver silver screen theatrical version and it looks awesome until I can make a new version of Despecialized, and this will be an invaluable asset in doing that, I would definitely recommend Team Negative One's version over Despecialized 2.5. Yeah, because which I think is extremely gracious, but I, I disagree. But well, it was very gracious so to say. The reason is is that Harmy can, knows where all the crap is, knows where all the bodies are buried in, in his special edition. He knows what he had to assemble. Oh, I took this piece from there and that piece from there, and I masked this out, and I combined that with this, and here's where it switches from high def to low def and whatever. He sees all of those things, right? I see a few of them because I've seen it so many times, uh, you know, here and there, but he knows where all the little problems are. And the great thing about Team Negative One is they're not piecing it together a patchwork made from special edition and non-special edition and different timings and like they've got some source material that is the movie is just screwed up and so they're cleaning up and fixing and adjusting cleaning up and fixing adjusting but the movie is right there in front of them like it's not it's not like they need to erase jabba or you know uh make greedo not shoot and do, like they don't have to do any of that so it's sort of right, one right. continuous thing and i can imagine harmy going well, this might not look good, as good as mine in some of the sharper scenes where I have quality HD footage, but it's it's uniform and it's all the same and it's the movie. You know, there's no, I don't see right. any weird stuff clipped and cut out of it. I'm trying to remember, there's one of these, I went through, when we went through our big Star Wars phase with my kid a few years ago, I was grabbing everything I could find. I can't remember, I mean, I I, I think I think unlike you, I enjoy the stuff that Mike Nichols did, the, the Phantom Editor. Uh, one of my favorite parts of watching the Phantom Edit and the one he did with the the Clones movie was his his commentary track, which it's it's so fun to watch. Like I know you're you're probably not a fan of you, you don't you're not a big fan of like fan edits, right? It depends. I mean, I I could be of Star Wars. No, it's not, not really, really what you're in it for, though, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm I've seen a million different versions of Blade Runner, and I'm I'm not opposed to the different versions, but. For Star Wars, I'm not really interested in someone trying to take a bunch of bad movies and see if they can salvage something good out of them. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, I, I don't see myself sitting around and watching a lot of what are called fan edits, where, like, you could basically make the movie... It's funny, because Mike kind of walks the line a little bit. Uh, and I'll put another thing in notes here, where I uh, put something on my site a few years ago, um, kind of pointing out what I enjoy, especially about his explaining why he did this with Jar Jar or that. But like there are like I think there's an, a site I want to say it's called fanedits.org or something, but where you can go and find these totally bananas like fan edits. You can go and people do the craziest stuff with like mashing movies together and putting things in different order or making like a you know their version of basically like the Godfather saga. You know things where you try and like make a big movie out of several different movies. There's one version somebody did of. Did you see the thing where somebody took the uh, prequel trilogy and made it into one movie? I have not. It's pretty interesting. That basically, mostly what they kept from Phantom Menace was the sword fight. 
<laughs> There's like something like 15 minutes from the Phantom Menace in it. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's a very, I, I think it's, it's interesting to watch. And even though it's not always my kind of thing exactly to sit down and watch, I, I'm really glad it exists and I'm glad people are doing it. And it's, I don't know. I, I have to think that this will eventually have an impact just showing the, how dedicated and interested people are. And of course, obviously with George out of the picture somewhat, it seems like it's got to happen at some point. I just watched the, uh, the main special feature on the force awakens, uh, yeah. uh the little, you know, typical like 90 minute or whatever it was. Maybe it was just an, yeah, hour. Like an hour long making of and how they did the casting and everything. Yeah. Right. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's by the numbers. Like there's nothing earth shattering and it's just one of those making up things you expect to see on uh on a, a disc version of a movie or now in a digital version as well but thinking of what you were just mentioning like taking pieces of the prequels and trying to assemble them back into another movie like it's not so much that i think that you that it's a waste of time to try to edit them or to try to cut them into pieces i just i just feel like the raw material is not there right it's not as if things were just in the wrong order or could be sliced up you have to add things that that just simply aren't on and you'd have to add new scenes essentially and i was was struck by watching the again very wrote by the numbers kind of making of hey we're making star wars let's talk with the crew let's show some behind the scenes stuff that's from the force awakens i was struck by the few scenes that they talk about for more than a couple of seconds uh and you see uh the actors talking about how they, you know, especially for the, you know, they say, oh, it was our first scenes. And I was really nervous. Like the whole big crew was there. And like, you you know, Daisy Ridley was like the only one in all the scenes for the first day. She had, or, to, she had to scrub that piece over and over. <laughs> yeah. Or, or uh, you know, Carrie Fisher was nervous about getting back into the swing of acting uh, for her thing. And her first day, she felt like was a mess. Um, and uh, JJ saying he wanted a whole day just to do uh, Han Solo coming onto the Falcon. And all I kept thinking about was like her scrubbing the, the parts or JJ uh, giving tips about how she's going to wear the helmet or whatever. I was like, Lucas would have been like, okay, everyone ready? Film it. Okay, good. Maybe one faster and more intense, and then you're out. Like, I know, I don't think that's actually how it goes, but my impression is from looking at the finished result that if the actor is in frame, in focus, in costume, saying the lines, that is good enough. <laughs> and then you just move on to the next summary. Whereas JJ was like, mm-hmm. my whole movie, you know, it's, it's just like the, you know, the old, uh, you know, Apple nerd uh, thing. I forget where this comes from. It might have come from Will Shipley. Who knows where it comes from? You know, all your application is is a collection of details. All your movie is is a collection of, of you know, tiny moments and small scenes. And so JJ is going to make her scrub that part for an hour until she gets the fraction of a second of expression that he wants. And that's the one he puts in the movie. That's the, you know, you look at her, like you see it's in the trailers or whatever. And you're looking, it's like, it's like magic. It's like, how does he do that? A bunch of takes, talking with the actor, understanding the character, like that's why you spend you know, that's why you spend a whole day filming Han and Chewie coming onto the Millennium Falcon and say we're home. That's why you know you let Carrie Fisher have the first date. I mean, you see in the making of you see Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford speaking lines to each other that are just not in the movie, right? Just sometimes you know that just throw stuff away. Just keep the good stuff. And I, and I, I with Carrie Fisher saying she had trouble on that first day. All I could yeah. think of was the scene that I noticed, not the first time I saw the Force Awakens, but the second and every subsequent time at one of the dramatic scenes where. Uh, uh, General Leia and, and uh, Han are talking in, in the base about what they're going to do about their son and everything. There's this emotional scene between the two of them. Uh, and Carrie Fisher has a series of lines um, 
and the camera's just on her like it's like over the shoulder of han and then you're seeing her talking and she says half of you know one or two lines and then three or four lines to finish up her little soliloquy but there's a cut between them not a cut from her to someone else but a cut from her to her without a time passage in between it and it's just because her there was one, no continuous take of her doing those three or four sentences that were good enough essentially so it was sentence one sentence two from this take and sentence three sentence four from that take and they didn't digitally right. morph her into it they just did a little cut watch for it the next time you watch it there and that's kind mm-hmm. of a shame that they didn't have one continuous because there's not a cutaway and maybe it could have been more artfully done but it shows the dedication to say look there's only a certain number of lines a certain number of scenes in this movie there's you know this is this we have these actors for this time in this moment Make sure you get what you want on film. Make sure you get it. Like, and if there's stuff that doesn't is not the stuff, throw it away. Don't put it in there. Don't use the cool opening. Did you hear the idea for what the the cool opening might have been to the Force Awakens? Instead of um, what did they? What was? What were they gonna do? Uh, I forget where I read this, but it was supposed to open on like uh, uh, Luke Skywalker's uh, lightsaber floating through space, like sort of you know, oh, the, the saber is lost out there and eventually gets found or something. Or like that would have been the opening image or whatever. Just. Uh, hmm thrown away it's a great idea but it's like doesn't fit in the movie that we want to have if there's signs with uh scenes with uh carrie fisher and harrison Ford uh speaking lines or whatever and they don't fit in there they're not just enough don't put them in right and that that's gets down to like are the raw materials there for the phantom edit and for all those movies no matter how much you move things around and snip them up and even try to maybe like mask out bad dialogue when you can't see people's lips moving or dub in something else the raw material, the performances are just not there. And that's even before you get to the story that is also not there. I just feel like the performances and everything is just, there's nothing you can do with that. Whereas The Force Awakens seems so much better, like all good movies, about get the ma- you know, find the magic moments, make your movie out of those. Uh, and if you mm-hmm. don't, if you don't get them, keep trying. And if it doesn't work, throw it out. Um, and, you know, again, that, that, that very simple making of, you, you wouldn't think, it would reveal anything profound about the difference between how this movie's made and how the other ones were. But just go back and watch one of those making ofs for like the Phantom Menace or something. It's just, it's just night and day. I mean, you, obviously you see it on the screen, but mm-hmm. I, I feel like you see it in the making of as well. You see it in how JJ is and the movie and the, the making of wasn't about this. It wasn't like, Oh, he's like Stanley Kubrick does a million takes. Like that's not what JJ Abrams is about. He's just a good director. Right. And the actors that's, if you read the making of empire books, the uh, Risner books or whatever, like, you read about all the interaction between the directors and the actors, how they go around in circles. And I think my character would do this or whatever. That, that's how you make good movies. You can't just have the people stand in front of the camera and say the lines and then fix it all in post. It just doesn't work that way. I just sent you a link to something <clears throat> Todd um, tutored out a couple of days ago. I feel like you guys talked about this on The Incomparable when you talked about the prequels. But there's the scene of the little Greedo kid trying to high five yeah we, we did talk about this was this was at the height of my exasperation i think in that episode it was like this was the take they used this <laughs> exactly. the refrain this this was the you know exactly. ma- maybe there's more than one take maybe there's it doesn't matter either there was only one take in which case that's unconscionable <laughs> or there were multiple takes and this is the one they used like that doesn't go in the movie like you know jj abrams had scenes of of han solo and princess leia talking to each other and he threw them out. He's like, nope, cutting room floor. Doesn't make the cut. Doesn't doesn't support the story. Performances weren't as good. Like, throw it out. Whereas George is like, I've got this one scene with the little mini Greedo guy trying to high five this guy. because, And it's a celebration scene. And we have 17 other celebrations. But you know what? Put that one in. I like that one. Right. It's a keeper. <laughs> and then on top of it, as uh, Pablo Hidalgo 
responds. <laughs> Did you see this? In the next, so he responds to Todd's tweet pointing to this, this animated gif of this, this abortive double high five. And Pablo Hidalgo says, as a bonus, <laughs> Kenny Baker's R2 head popped off its track. And now when you watch this gif, you, you can't unsee it. He says uh, it pops loose in the preceding shot when R2 watches the racers go by and it stays like that for the rest. And you can see that his head's like akimbo. R2's head is all yeah, akimbo. Don't, don't tell George. He'll try to fix that part digitally, but leave the, the uh, terribly <laughs> embarrassing, I can't see anything in this uh, mask high five attempt. <laughs> we have realigned the droid's head. So, so painful, so unnecessary, so not adding anything to your movie. This is not one of those magic moments that you keep in to make your movie great. Yeah, when um, when Force Awakens popped up the other day, um, it's funny. What what am I comfortable confessing? Let's just say that when it popped up, my paid version of it popped up the first day I was able to pay for it. Uh, I uh, I jumped straight into that feature, and I have to tell you, you know, you know the way some, everybody's got a soft spot. Some people have a sp- soft spot for like you know Christmas shows or something. I have a certain kind of soft spot for a totally cheesy promotional video like that maybe because it's the kind of thing i used to love as a kid like when they had to fill time between movies on hbo they would show those little short you know seven or ten minute promotional things about films for some reason i I love those and i i enjoyed that short i think it's called what's it called the magic of the force awakens or something like that secrets of the force secrets that's it secrets and the thing is you know I I was ready to, I was ready to be played like a fiddle and I was from the opening all the shots of the actors talking about like oh is it okay to talk about this I thought it was adorable I liked it on so many levels I enjoyed the behind the scenes stuff I love seeing all the character stuff and you know where they've come you know you remember what it was like well you may not remember this far back but when you're a little kid like Fangora magazine would have like six photos in it and I would pour over them for two or three months just looking at every detail in, in this this picture of the Millennium Falcon and I, I think that kind of stuff it still gets me so I loved you know it was it's silly I guess but I really enjoyed it the one thing I mentioned here I also enjoyed the not a dog whistle exactly, but I would say it was very respectfully put together. But there were a lot of things that were not mentioned in detail during that movie that I thought were kind of interesting. For example, <laughs> a very minimal amount of discussion <laughs> about the prequels at all. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, didn't that kind of stick out? I pointed out uh, Doug Chang, is, is that his name? The, the, the one guy, the one holdover from the prequels that was allowed. Oh, was, still was, around. Was given yeah. safe. He was, he was allowed to go to the Grey Havens with the, uh, oh, yeah, I can't make these references with you. Anyway. Roderick, the Tolkien? Roderick would get it if he listened. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, he was allowed to come over. It's like, all right. All right. I mean, he did the art for the prequels and, and, and the design. Like, And I think a lot of the designs in the prequels is really good. The ship designs, the location I love the vehicles, designs. yeah. Uh, that stuff is great, so he was allowed to go there. But yeah, not a lot of uh, not a lot of other uh, references to the prequels in there. Although I was surprised uh, to see them use the best song from the prequels in their making of featurette. They Duel of the Fates is in the background briefly for a couple scenes, uh, which was cute, and that's a good song. Um, the, is that from I'm, I've heard Dan, Dan Moore and I think you talk about this a lot and Dan's a big fan of soundtracks I mean don't a lot of people consider Phantom Menace to be like one of the better soundtracks yeah it's a really good soundtrack um, there yeah they, I mean Duel of the Fates is a very strong song not, I'm not gonna say on par with the Imperial March but it fills the same role in the sort of iconic new piece of music that is exciting and menacing uh, that that was the the Phantom Menace's dual phase, and then you know Anakin's theme and stuff with the echoes of Darth Vader's theme is just very cleverly done and uh, very mm-hmm. good. And, and the, the Force Awakens music is really growing on me too. It's it's simple and it's more restrained, but it really 
it really has cemented itself in my mind as as a star wars thing i noticed that like watching the featurette of like oh they're playing star wars music behind that it's like well this wasn't star wars music until it appeared in the force awakens very recently and yet it is slotting so nicely into the this is star wars music uh, in your mind it's a testament to their uh their ability to make it star wars which they didn't you know and I, I thought the whole feature was very restrained and not hammering too much on those things again not not a lot of extra insight no real secrets revealed not, yeah but, not for, but for a promotional piece for a promotional piece though it had a lot of nice like it didn't push it, i mean one thing that if it, it's how do you talk about the force awakens without talking about the incredibly high level of of uh, as you guys say a high level of difficulty for jj abrams i mean you know it's it's incredible that it turned out as well as it did given i mean how much would you be in your own head if you were directing that movie you know what I mean? Yeah. Just constantly thinking about what you have to live up to, what you have to do, what you have to absolutely have in this or people are going to hate you, what you absolutely have to not have in this or people will hate you, what you will get triple, quadruple credit for like uh, referencing lightly but not pushing too hard. You know, how do you bring out these notes, all of these notes of these, um, you know, these are very affecting relationships that we've been following all of these years without beating it into the ground. And that came through in that in that piece, that, that fluffy piece. I, I I thought the way they handled stuff like, hey, Carrie Fisher's having a bad day. I I, I liked seeing that. Yeah, but I mean, what, what the really hardcore fans are looking for is like, I want to see a three-hour, like, in-depth Charlie Rose, fresh air style interview with every single one of these major people. <laughs> like, you know, have... have 78 hours of behind the scenes but here each person gets three sentences but even within these these three sentences most of which are you know like you said fluff or whatever i think there was a nugget of good insight that i hadn't heard expressed in this way before anyone who's a big star wars fan knows the stories of han solo petitioning george lucas to kill off uh, his character Mm -hmm. uh, harrison ford petitioning george lucas to kill off his character in return of the jedi uh, that originally the uh, and also the Falcon wasn't supposed to make it out with it. Lando was on that, but anyway, uh, you know, Ford wanted Han Solo to die in Jedi, um, and that has been spun uh, in Star Wars fandom, at least my impression of it over the many years. It has slowly morphed or slowly cemented into the most cynical view, which is that Harrison Ford is not that interested in the character of Han Solo. He's interested in Indiana Jones more, which would explain that. Why is he doing The Last Crusade? But he says so many bad things about Han Solo, like that the actor didn't like the character that much, like that he was he was tired of it. felt like it was one note, flat, not interesting. And to a Star Wars fan, it's like, well, I like Indiana Jones. He's great and all. Um, but I also like Han Solo, and I don't think he's one note or flat. Um, and that that sort of impression of that aspect of Star Wars is obviously not accurate. And it was nice to see a fairly cantankerous what else is new harrison ford uh yeah. in the few sections he's in this interview set the record straight on that the the you know, he got like three sentences in the whole making of right and but uh one of the three or four sentences they pick was him saying look it's not like i wanted to kill han solo or that i was sick of doing the movies or i thought he was a crappy character he said in the first movie i felt like han solo had something to do it had an arc he you know he started somewhere and ended up somewhere. In the second movie, same thing. I felt like the character was contributing to the story, like that there was, as an actor, there was meat on the bones. There was something for you to do. And he said, in the third movie, it didn't it didn't feel like Han Solo had anything to do except run around and be Han Solo. He didn't have a character. Well, it's, the, it's the resolution of the cliff. It's huge to, to have the resolution of the cliffhanger from um, uh, Empire. 
Yeah. But, you know, he doesn't have, he's not critical to the story after he gets, you right. know, I mean, he was just the damsel, by the lady in the He mask. was just the damsel in distress, and now, he's, now he knows how it feels to be damseled. You know, it's like, oh, my job is to get rescued, so what do I do for the rest of the movie? I basically just run around and, like, have a brief myth- misunderstanding that Luke is, is uh, Leia's sister, but, like, there's nothing there. So he's like, well, look, if you kill me in the movie, then I have something to do. Like, yes, I'm rescued, but then, like, it's a noble sacrifice. Like, my arc is complete, you know what I mean? And yeah. that... Which he articulated there, you know, it seemed like, obviously he hadn't been holding that, and I'm sure he'd said it in many other interviews, but it had brought me back to the reality, like, no, it's not that he thought that it was a one-note character, it's just that Han had, you know, for an actor, wanting, and Harrison Ford, as cantankerous as he may be, again, reading the making of books, you learn that every movie he's in, he wants, he's a smart guy, and he... He knows what makes a good movie, and he wants his character and his role in it to be important, not for ego reasons, but just like because it makes good movies. If you're just there, like wearing the outfit, you're basically cosplaying on Soul. He wants his character to be a real person that has an important role in making the movie a good movie. And he felt for the first two movies, Star Wars movies was there, and the third one it wasn't, and he's kind of annoyed that he didn't get uh, get to have his character killed off. Um, and so clearly in The Force Awakens, you know his character has a role and a point and you know the whole handoff to the next generation and the, the father son there's plenty of meat on those bones and so there's plenty of reason for him to be in it and to get that to, to be brought back to the reality of that by this little puff featurette is you know that little nugget alone was good to sort of uh remind me that the uh the accumulated history of star wars fandom uh to date is not the uh the ground truth in the matter and that just of course makes me hungry to see another you know I, I, another three hours of the same conversations with every one of those people but i'll take what i can get for now this episode of reconcilable differences is brought to you by mail route you can learn more about mail route right now by going to mailroute.net slash diffs that's d-i-f-f-s Gang, in 2016, IT departments are expected to do more, but with way less money. This includes the really important stuff like stopping spam and virus attacks. On top of this, end-of-life announcements for trusted hardware and software options make these decisions more difficult than ever. First, Postini went away. Remember that? Now, MX Logic, right? Who can you trust to do, to do that job well and to stick around? I'll tell you who. MailRoute. MailRoute will protect your email and your hardware. Against spam, viruses, and other attacks, there's no hardware or software to install. If you own your domain, hey, that is all you need to use MailRoute. MailRoute's team has focused exclusively on email protection since 1997. Their interface is easy to use, and it is loaded with admin tools, including an API, and it's all designed to make your life spam-free. MailRoute supports LDAP and Active Directory, TLS, mailbagging, Outbound Relay, everything you'd want from the people handling your mail. And right now, MailRoute is offering price matching for McAfee and MX Logic customers. No nerd left behind. They have been at this for a long time. You know, if you want anybody handling your mail, don't you, don't you want to be an email nerd? Somebody who does nothing but email nerdery all day? You got to check these folks out. Stop spam today. Get a 30-day free trial of MailRoute by going to mailroute.net slash diffs. Listeners to this program get 10% off the lifetime of their account. You can even email them. They get, they get email at the email company. You can email them at sales at mailroute.net if that's how you roll. MailRoute protects your email from spam and viruses, and that's it. That is all they do, and they do it better, and they've been doing it longer than anybody out there. Am I right? Up high. So please, go check out mailroute.net slash diffs. Our thanks to MailRoute for doing so much wonderful stuff with our e- email and for supporting Reconcilable Differences.
I like the one on the uh, on the creature making too. I'll always eat that stuff with a spoon. Yeah, I have a lot of stuff on the visual effects. Some of that is like they talk about it briefly, like they touch on you know we bought Lucasfilm, <laughs> and they said we really <laughs> want to have a movie by 2015, which is one of those decisions that is not really creatively motivated. It's motivated by we spent a lot of money for this. We want to see a return on investment in this amount of time. And then they have to finesse the, we got this guy to write it, but then we said, eh, you're out, Kazan's in. We got to finesse that in the making of, uh, which, you know, it's fine. That's the business of movie making. But the right. time pressures and all the other pressures they were under, part of the reason that, like, uh, Maz is, is a CG effect, like the, the few things that are arguably weak in the movie, like I think in my very first podcast about it, I was like, I kind of wish Maz wasn't CG, but she stands out as unlike so much else in the movie. Um they just, you know, by the time her character was finalized, they didn't have any other way to do it. Computer, like, was the was the only and last resort for it, right? And so they had to mocap yeah. her doing all that stuff, which was obviously uncomfortable for her. And, it's, you know, for, for a character that important, they maybe would have liked to do some kind of hybrid thing or, you know, anyway, this, that's, that's movie making for you. Sometimes you, you, the schedule is never what you want it to be. Sometimes, you know, Harrison Ford breaks his leg. And I'm surprised they didn't mention that, by the way. Harrison Ford breaking his leg in the middle of yeah, filming right. and taking two weeks off. That, I guess that would have made the feature out too long because you got to have like a seven minute segment about that and with sad music and everything. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you know, that's no, no, you don't get it perfect. In a movie, even with the incredible budget and resources, they had time constraints and they had uh, actor schedules they had to work around. Um, and, you know, so many things they had to design, so many sets, so many characters. Uh, it's amazing that it came together as well as it did. If, if Disney, Lucas, whoever were to do a re-release i'm trying to put this in the most vague way possible to give you some runway uh so let's say they've decided they've announced that they are going to put out um star wars emperor strikes back and uh return of the jedi they're going to put those out what what do you want to hear and what do you want to see when that happens like in other words you, you don't want you don't want to hear a special 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 edition i'm no. guessing like what do you what, what like what would you need to hear to feel good about about that announcement I think because you would. <laughs> I'm the only reason I mentioned. It. I mean, I know there would be an incomparable. There'd be a two-hour incomparable <laughs> just about the announcement. <laughs> so I'm curious what what that would sound like to you to, to make you happy. I think the the only reason to do it, you you have to pitch it this way. This is what I would want to hear, and I think this is, this is how they have to pitch it. They'd have to pitch it as, um, see it the way it was back in 1977. Like I don't know how you phrase it. There's some catchphrase like, uh, go, you know. Uh, go back to the original, you know, relive uh, Star Wars, the original trilogy of Star Wars, as they were shown when the movies were released. Like, I can't I can't come up with a snappy phrase for it, but that's the pitch. That's the marketing slogan. That's everything. Uh, you know, you come up with a snappy one-liner about relive the originals. It, they wanted to be like, take me back. Show me what I would have seen again with that time machine. And everything else is details. Well, what are they doing? Did, how did they get it? What sources did they use? Blah, blah, blah. doesn't matter. The pitch is... What we're releasing is is just like you would have seen if you went to the movie theaters when each of these movies was released. Um, but better? I don't think you need to say better. I don't think because you could argue about like, oh, well, is Blu-ray resolution equivalent to 35 millimeter film or equivalent to 70 millimeter print? Or like, what was it shot on? About that's those are all details that I don't care about. Obviously, they would release it on Blu-ray just because that is the and digital, which is the thing they release it on these days. 
but everything else after that it it doesn't matter now they can say this is the highest quality and blah blah they can st- after the pitch of like see what originally is every i i don't care because i, I have faith that they're not going to release a standard deaf movie on blu-ray right and i have also have faith i hope i mean i guess this is what the the two hour incomparably about is that they will they will have had the bar set by harmy and everybody else to say we can't release something inferior that we can't just this can't be a rush job this can't be like oh slap this together just to, to cash in on the money like i really hope they don't do the return on investment math and realize they can't spend the money it would take to do it right with the best materials that, that that's what i'm hoping that they do they say like we're gonna make so much money on this we can pay the best people in the world to spend like three years of their life just scouring the earth for the best sources for these things and doing the deep scholarship to say what was it originally like where you know and to come up with something that's better than these amateurs doing it in their free time or these semi-professionals doing it in their free time hell hire everybody who's ever done one of these things and make them part of the team i mean that's just that's just a gimme like i like seeing in the uh the making a featurette the guy who built uh r2d2 replicas uh, and mentioned that to uh, I think Kathleen Kennedy. Oh or something. my god, that was those two guys. That was so cool. And they got the call of like, yeah, we think we might have a job for you because uh, you're so good at making these R two D twos. You probably have more experience making R two D twos than anyone else who's willing to work on this film because the people who made the originals are probably retired or dead. So yeah, come on down, right? It's you know it's time for the show, right? So I totally think that's what the Disney should do or whatever. But yeah, like you're you're hoping that that the pitches see it like it was originally, and the reality is we got the best of the best together. And I have some faith that's going to happen because if you look at the force awakens, they got the best of the best together to make this movie. I mean, look at the people there. You have, you know, Phil Tippett and, and Dennis Murin running around and you got ILM, you, you, you know, you got all the original cast, all the original people, John Williams doing the music. You got, you got a prequel guy thrown in there. Everyone else is consulting like all the art and all the concept. Art. I got a, what did I get? One of these making of books. that's like, I think it's just called the art of the force awakens that takes you through the sort mm-hmm. of each individual artist and their concepts. And, you know, they talk about it in the feature at how bef- before they had a script, before they even had a story, they had just vague ideas and tons and tons of art made by talented artists. And, you know, I mean, I guess it's cheap in the grand scheme of things, but they, they hired this whole team of people and like just everyone draw something they think is star Wars. And then JJ would go through that stuff and go, that inspires me. That gives me an idea. Or yes, no, no. Yeah. There's so many good ideas that again that they didn't use. If you go through that art of the Force Awakens, it's like wow, some of these images are amazing. I can't believe they didn't make it to the movie. He just took the three or four of them. Maybe not even the best three or four. I think there were some great ideas in there. They just didn't make the movie. But of course, at a certain point, you got to have someone writing a story and a script and fit it all together. Just the the amazing team of people they got together to make this movie on all fronts makes me believe that if they ever do come out with the hey, it's the original trilogy again, they're going to get an amazing team of people together to do that job as well. I don't know if it was in the, the long feature or the character one. I feel like it was in the feature. But uh, one thing I'm, I'm kind of cool they left in, did you see when he goes down and visits with the model makers and the the character people? And there's a scene where he goes down and he's like, you know, hey, I want to be here, do the best I can. But I don't, I've only watched this once. But he said, he basically, it was, it was like the Hunger Games or something. He was like, okay, everybody here is capable of some great work. Like, go make your best thing and let's, let's see what it looks like. And he walks around with post it notes, like putting post it notes on the different characters, like, yes, this, yes, this, yes, this. And, you know, consequently, no, these. Yeah. It was, the, it was the guy saying, like, just because you make something doesn't mean it's ever going to appear anywhere in film. Because you, I, you have, like, we make crap all the time. We make these beautiful, awesome models. And it's it's like, you know, again, before you have 
it's I, it seemed like it was the opposite of like we've got a movie to make and as part of the movie we need like a uh, you know a purple fuzzy bear so your job is to make the purple fuzzy bear and here's the description of the purple fuzzy bear go <laughs> this was we don't have a movie can you just make a bunch of cool crap and i'll look at it <laughs> and see if it triggers anything in me and if it does maybe i'll use it or maybe it'll change form and if it doesn't yeah, throw it yeah. away happens right like they're, they're not they're not building things for a movie they're building a movie out of things uh the, the idea that like phasma's armor was like how about, how about kylo ren he could have the shiny thing jay's like no kylo ren's not a shiny guy but that's a good idea keep that around and then you know later it's like oh that does look cool and you know, i love the where whereas uh stuart wellington when you didn't phantasm the, the inspiration for phasma I, I, I that came out of nowhere i would not no. have guessed that <laughs> nice armor boy yeah <laughs> Uh, JJ is such a fan, uh, such a, such a fan, but such a smart fan. Because uh, because uh, uh, you know a, a really enthusiastic fan can easily go overboard and make a terrible movie that looks like fan fiction. But JJ's smart and talented, and he warmed up on the Star Trek movies as is appropriate, and he did a good job. Did you notice how many lens flares there were on the uh, title cards? <laughs> the title was <laughs> really funny. Yeah, uh, I have a dream. I have a dream that what we're describing happens, and I, I have this dream that I know is just a dream. I would love it if there was still some way for, for mommy and daddy to be together one last time. There's still this part of me that thinks, I want to believe that George still has it in him and that he's got some taste, and he could somehow work on this project, give it his blessing, and this is the real dream, is actually make it better by being there and saying, no, like real talk, that's that's the color it should be. That's the way it should be. I don't know if he remembers anymore, and I don't know if he would tell the truth even if he did remember. I know, I know but don't you, I mean, isn't this, this is our, this is our like Return of the Jedi moment where we're like, we're like going like, this is your last chance, dude. This is your last chance. I've, I've taken off the helmet. Like, this is your chance to at least say, I'm sorry. He doesn't have to apologize. It's fine to do what he is. No, just that like, know, he, he needs, like, his, his, his problem is to the denial of the past. No one, no one's denying the future. By all means, go forward, build the future, build the future that you want to see. You know, but as I said at length on, I was it hypercritical. Maybe Star Wars is not a blog post. I forget which one that was. Oh yeah, classic. That'll that'll go in notes. So much value. You can't deny it. this is a thing that happened in the world. And not only is it a thing that happened, it is a really, really, really significant thing. Millions and millions of people saw these movies when they were released. And those movies became incredibly important for people. And you can make whatever you want going forward. And you can alter them and uh, try to make them how you always wanted to make them. But the thing that you made as it existed, flaws and all, whether you consider them flaws, so many people experience that, that it's out of your hands at that point. It's part of culture. It's like the definition of part of culture. Star Wars is like the poster child for it, right? Um, And that should be and needs to be preserved and we're going to make that happen with or without George Lucas. And at this point, I'm not entirely sure that George Lucas has any particular deep knowledge of, I mean, and not through any fault of his own, not through maliciousness, but like I know as a, someone who has created one or two things in my life that very often as the creator, all you can remember is how you wanted it to be, which is a useful thing to want to remember, especially if you're making the special edition, like, Oh, actually I wanted it to be, but can you remember? Like it's not, it's not in the front of your mind how it turned out. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I was trying to do this. So if you were to ask him, how, what color was this supposed to be? He's like, well, it was supposed to be red. But all of us went to the movie theater and saw it, and it was like, you know, green or purple or a different shade of red or whatever. What we're looking for is not what you were trying to do, but what actually ended up 
in front of people's eyeballs in those movie theaters. Um, and he's not in a good position to know that because I think all his, it's like when you try to proofread your own writing, all you read is what you meant to write, not what's actually on the page. And when oh, it comes, when that it, is good. When it comes to preserving yeah. uh, the past, what we're interested in is what was on the page. Well, I can dream. Yeah. And I don't think he needs to be redeemed. He has nothing to apologize for. You know what I mean? Like, other than if he actually did destroy stuff, because he should apologize for that, because that's just like, you know. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. I, but I don't think he did. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I think that's all mostly a smokescreen and BS. And I think, uh, you know, maybe the, the people involved who were uh, lax about preserving. I know this has happened with a lot of movies that like, you know, they, they go on the <laughs> air. They make a lot of people rich. Those people get old and retire and die. Everyone forgets about those movies until it comes time to make like the DVD release in 1992. And you're like, oh, where is that movie? And you find it and it's moldy and it's a piece of crap. And it's like, well, this was kind of an important movie. We should have been paying attention to the degradation of this film stock. And now, you know, and that happened with so many movies. And they had all these painstaking, like the Godfather restoration. Godfather, yeah, yeah. yeah well, it, how is it that there's, how is it that uh, 2001 still looks so good? A movie that came out some eight years earlier? Yeah, I, I think it has to. Every time I see one of these things, I'm always amazed that the you know it's not just like there's film and prints. There's like 17 different technologies and companies and variations, um, and it's very often like that the one that was like the good one or the best one at the time the movie was in theaters is not actually the one that has the most longevity in terms of if I stick this on a shelf for 15 years and come back to it, what is it going to look like? Uh, mm-hmm. And so you're kind of at the, at the whim of like, what was made out of this and what was it shot on? Um, because it, it just feels like the people were, it, it's amazing that this is true, but I guess, you know, it's the Hollywood mindset. They're making it to make a great movie now, to make money now, to, you know, win their Oscars, to make their box office millions, to be a movie star. And surprisingly, for such an egotistical field, not enough people are thinking about this should be preserved forever. Even if it's just a piece of crap movie that you wasn't very good and didn't come out well and didn't make any money, it's still important enough if enough people see it or if it's, you know, an important genre. Like, you don't know what's going to be important. So I almost feel like there should be, like, a government... I mean, there is, I guess, the Library of Congress. But, you know, like a, a more forceful sort of disinterested third party to say, our job is just to record things. We are the historians uh, to record, preserve, and protect the, the 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 you know the culture and the art made by all the people. And it seemed like someone a, a, cin- a cinematic a cinematic Uatu the Watcher, someone uh, the big baby head guy, the guy who's always just sitting around recording Marvel history. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Although that does sound <laughs> vaguely familiar. You probably mentioned it back to work once. But yeah, like they, they to, to you know the historians to preserve things and write things down. When it comes to art, um, have have an eye towards. Which one of these things is more ephemeral than the other? Like, uh, you know, a marble statue, just got to make sure it doesn't get crushed for the most part, and you're usually pretty good. But film, as we came to learn, has, you know, depending on what, you know, that's why so many, like, older films, especially, like, black and white films, held up much better than the early color films or a particular color technology that was popular during a certain time. We didn't know everything was going to turn purple in five years or whatever, you know? It's, uh, it's tricky. Uh, now I think people know, especially with digital, it's like, well... Digital saves you from that because you just got to keep uh, fleeing the, uh, the the the, uh, the demon dogs of entropy as you just make copy after copy after copy and just keep checksumming them. You're like, I will outrun, I will outrun death and uh, thermodynamics <laughs> by continuing to copy the bits bit for bit, perfectly checksummed uh, across different kinds of media, and it's in theory completely lossless. Whereas film, it's like every second that's sitting on film, it's it's, it's a liability. You got to get that off and into some digital form. Or at the very least, 
use some film stock that has some known preservation characteristics, like maybe, you know, encase it in nitrogen in the last 10,000 years, like whatever you got to do. Um, but digital is obviously uh, preferable. Even if it was originally shot on film, if you want it to last for a long time, if it's in any kind of physical medium that has chemicals that react with each other in the air, it is going to change over time. So digi- digital is your only hope, really. Why am I not in charge of the world? Do you ever think about that? Oh, I think about it a lot. Yeah. I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd love it in every situation, and I don't think it would be the best outcome for me, but it would, f- for most people, be a better outcome if you ran things. I've thought about it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Once again. But wouldn't you love to go into that big room with the uh, archives? Can you imagine that? Of the Jedi archives where they erased the planet? No. See? You're making me make references that I want to make. <laughs> <sighs> well, I think we can have sympathy for George Lucas because sometimes even in the best shows, it becomes difficult to kill off a beloved character. This is your, your uh, clumsy way to do a segue. <laughs> it's nice that like, I actually had a topic beep, all... Beep, beep. I had a topic all prepared, but I think we literally right before recording this, we watched the you know the the special features with the with the family. Although I had to convince oh, them, they were you? like uh, they were like, "Is there a new version of the, uh, new episode of the Flash?" That's what they wanted to watch, and there wasn't a new episode of the Flash. And they said, "Is there a new episode of Supergirl?" And there wasn't. And so then I got to force them to watch this. I think they were probably bored. Although uh, well, my, daughter point, my daughter is so was bored during it, but she's just a little bit of a lukewarm. <sighs> Well, you know, sometimes I have to just start something playing and act like I'm watching it on my own and like, uh, you know, hey, whatever, whatever. I don't care if you watch this. If I start watching something on my own, well, that's crack. She comes right in and we'll watch it. Yeah. I was trying to watch that, um, I was trying to watch that um, Headhunters movie last night, which is definitely not for kids, when she wandered into the room. She's like, what is this? What is this? I was like, it's just, you know. You try to watch movies like that when your daughter is awake? Well, she's going, she's, mom's reading to her at that point. I'm trying to just, no, I'm so trying to just like jam go, in. Like over well, so... She gets, she's being they enjoy that time together. Uh-huh. Yeah, we split it up. All right. Anyway, uh, yeah. oh, like I've ever, like I've ever, ever pretended that I do most of the work. Give me a break. <sighs> uh, yeah, but like yeah, you're right. The pressure of like family event, and I did. I just bore in from like, listen, it's a family event. We're watching the special features on Force Awakens. They're like, oh no, Flash. Oh, right. Luckily, if there were if there were episodes of that, we would be watching them instead. But there weren't, so we watched that. That and- was a cute episode then when uh, when Barry. Uh, came to visit. Uh, what's your name? That was a cute episode. Yeah, although it was fun. Now I'm I'm caught up on Flash now, which took me a long time because I ignored the show for a long time. And I honestly, I don't think I would be watching the show if it wasn't for my kids because I feel like it's not up my alley. But it's cute, and we watch it as a family, so it's great. And yeah, same thing, no, same thing with Supergirl. Wouldn't be watching it on my own, but it's a great show for family. Um, but I finally totally started Arrow, and Arrow is perhaps sad and dark enough that i would watch it on my own because that's that's my alley i guess sad and dark yeah. i mean it's still kind of like play school like kitty friendly or whatever but it's like it's an interesting blend. i don't know it's just pretty dark yeah but it's, it's still i mean ever it's just a bunch of attractive young people it's like 90210 superheroes like it's fine um but anyway i now that i've started arrow i feel like of those shows that i watch that one is the most appealing and you would think that Daredevil would be even more appealing. I'm, I haven't started uh, season two of Daredevil. You think Daredevil would be even more appealing, but I, I feel like Arrow embraces its cheese a little bit better. I think uh, Daredevil maybe takes itself a little bit too seriously and doesn't live up to that because it's not like Daredevil is yeah. Game of Thrones or even Breaking Bad, but it just takes itself very seriously. Anyway, I haven't seen season two, so I will start that uh, huh, soon. Yeah, I'm curious to hear what you think. Um. You might you might like that Headhunters movie. It's yeah, really I put it, I added it to my uh, my queue. This episode of Reconcilable Differences is brought to you in part by Casper. You can learn more right now by visiting casper.com/diffs. That's D I F F S. 
You guys know Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get for a fraction of the price that you'd pay in stores. A Casper mattress provides resilience and long-lasting supportive comfort. Casper's mattress is a one-of-a-kind, a a new kind of hybrid mattress that combines premium latex foam with memory foam. These two technologies come together for a terrific night's sleep. It's an obsessively engineered mattress made in America and made available to you at a shockingly fair price. Here's the thing. Mattresses are so expensive. You go into a store, you go into some retail place, you're easily going to pay over $1,500, but not with your buddies at Casper.com. These are shockingly affordable, shockingly affordable mattresses. Prices start at $500 for a twin size, $750 for a full-size mattress, $850 for queen, only a a pittance, $950 for a king-size mattress. Where is the irony? Such a wonderful giant mattress. You'll never use all of that mattress. Less than $1,000. I think to understand how Casper is different, you've got to look at how the mattress racket has worked in the past. This is an industry that has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high prices. Casper is literally revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. Yes, you. Casper understands that buying a mattress online eh, can leave you wondering, how is this possible? This seems really weird. How would you buy a mattress on the internet? Are we living in the future? Well, yes, we are. We are in the future. Hello. It is a completely risk-free proposition. You get your mattress from Casper. They deliver it to your house for free. You get to sleep on it for 100 nights. And if for some reason it is not to your satisfaction, you can send it back. It is literally that simple. You don't want to just go lay on a mattress for a couple minutes in a showroom. That's not how you want to spend a third of your life. Casper understands the importance of really trying out that mattress. And they are shipped to you in a box. You can carry it up steps like a person. You open it up. You've got a big, beautiful box full of mattress. It comes to life as you open it. You, you're, you're like a midwife, a midwife for sleep, literally. I've had my Casper mattress for over a year. I love it to death. I notice if I sleep on anything else, I do not like it. I like my Casper mattress, and I really believe that you will like yours. Listeners to the Reconcilable Differences program can get $50 American toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash diffs and using the very special offer code diffs, that's D-I-F-F-S, terms and conditions apply. Please try these folks out. We're very grateful for their support, and I just love the sleep. So thank you so much to Casper for supporting Reconcilable Differences and all of Relay FM. So should we, should we make the announcement here? Yeah, feel free. See, people are still mad. They're still mad about the game. A, there's people who are mad about the game because they feel like they can't listen to that episode with the giant spoiler warnings on it. They're afraid to listen to the show. And then they got other people who are miffed because we talked about the game in the episode after the game. And probably now, talking about the game now is probably still making people mad because we're reminding them that it has spoiler stuff in it. Yeah, I, I understand where they're coming from. There is one and only one episode of IRL Talk, a podcast that I used to listen to um, uh, because now it's off the air, where they discuss, they have a spoiler-filled discussion of Gone Girl. And I have not seen Gone Girl, so I just paused it when they got after that part. And that was like, what, two years ago? Whatever Gone Girl was, and it's still sitting there on my in my podcast queue. I figure someday I'll watch Gone Girl, and then I can finish up that episode. I've I had people who've said the same thing to me about like they listened to me talk about Journey, and, and when I told them to pause the podcast right. and come back, and like years later they're saying now finally I can unpause that <laughs> podcast, and, and they're doing it right. This is how it works, and the, so I, I for this particular episode 
we discussed briefly beforehand that if we're going to talk about spoiler things, at the very least, we'll put it in the, in the back half of the episode. So you could have listened to the episode up to this point, and now we are going to talk about a spoiler-filled thing. And if you have to pause it now, I think it feels more comfortable to pause it now rather than saying, oh, find the timestamp when we resume I think we should just talk. say we're, we're going to talk about the season six finale of The Walking Dead in excruciating detail. Uh, if if you don't want to hear that, don't listen to the rest of this show. Right. Isn't that awful to say that well, to people? Or come back to it after you've watched. Like, if, you don't, if you're not watching The Walking Dead, you can listen. We're going to spoil the whole thing for you. We're going to spoil the whole six seasons, like everything up to where they are now. If you don't care, fine. If you do care, pause the show now. And then three years. I mean, presumably, if you care, you're going to eventually watch season six. Just come back to this episode. Yeah. That's why we're putting it on the back half. See you next time. So, give me your history with The Walking Dead, and I'll give you mine. So, I know it was a comic book, but I'm not a comic book person, so I obviously hadn't read it. I like end of the world stuff. I like apocalypses. I like any kind of apocalypse. I'm a big fan of that. Movies. You know, short stories, books, everything. I like those type of stories. And so when I heard they were making a television series from this very popular and critically acclaimed, uh, I'm led to believe, comic book series, and it's about the end of the world, I'm on board right right away. I mean, I'm not particularly into zombies, but if you're going to kill everybody on Earth except for a few people, I will watch that. And if it's done really well and there was you know <laughs> pedigree behind the show and the people involved, I was totally on board. And I remember watching the first season and thinking i'm not sure this show has its legs under it yet uh i had uh to get over a little bit of the whole uh rules of the zombie world stuff like you just have to get past that if you're going to watch this show but it did enough things right that i kept watching and by the end i think it was the end of season two when that little girl comes out of the barn um i was pretty much fully on board at that point even though like the whole love triangle scene tried and everything i'm like all right these characters these actors the setting there's enough there that i'm going to follow the show and i honestly i have never looked back um i still think like game of thrones breaking bad uh the other you know or even something like deadwood those sort of contemporaries uh, obviously in many respects are better shows than even the best of the walking dead but the walking dead has always been in the category of show i'm gonna watch it like essentially when it airs i'm not gonna let it sit on the dvr for three days like it is it is in my num my top tier shows like you know uh, right now with the ones that are in game of thrones walking dead if i i you find this out by the way if you have a tivo back in the days when tivos didn't have a million tuners and you had to prioritize your season passes oh yeah you're forced to sort of say look the number one show that gets recorded no matter what number two show gets recorded as long as it doesn't conflict with the number one show the number three shows gets recorded as long as it doesn't conflict with number one and number two and you know and anyway with my tivo with six tuners now it's less of an issue but that, was, if, I remember, if i remember that was always very fun to do yeah and what it would do is it's like the <laughs> no do you remember how long it would take when you'd say oh yes yeah the, the process there was the trick for like not actually hitting the button you, for the final you would thing. just do it do it for a while and then save and walk away for 20 minutes yeah it was ridiculous it was it was terrible but but it's like that what did i hear that on some podcast recently the, the whole idea that very often if you'll ask somebody uh i think it was about going out to dinner um maybe it was hello internet that i was hearing this on because i'm working through that archive too um uh where do you want to go for dinner you know you do want uh, you know italian food or chinese oh i don't care whatever like you know you pick i have no preference one way or the other to f for people who are not really in touch with their feelings i feel like i have to give this preface because this is generally an alien experience in terms of preferences not in terms of other feelings surely but in terms of preferences i can usually tell you exactly what i want and why um 
if someone is saying that, but you suspect that they really do have a preference, it may not be that they're sort of sandbagging and doing the like, oh, I don't care, and just it's like a test to see if you pick what they wanted to pick in the first place. Uh, it could just be that they don't realize they have a preference. So the easy way to find out is to say, okay, I'm going to flip a coin. Uh, you know, heads Chinese food, tails Italian. Flip the coin. When the coin is mm-hmm. in the air, there's a moment where in the other person's heart of hearts, they're hoping it comes either heads or tails. Well, or even even more saliently, I, I totally agree. I think I had a forty three folders post about this years ago. Like if you if you do flip that coin, you're not going to notice the one you really want. In my experience, you're going to really notice the one you don't want. Right. Or suddenly like, you're going to go, oh, I really don't want Indian food. Yeah. Like you're you are hoping you have a hoped for outcome. Suddenly, heads and tails are not equal in your mind. You are rooting for or against something, and that is a way of, <laughs> of tricking. It's you know tricking yourself into actually recognizing what your preferences are. Again, I I. I don't feel like I have this experience, but I know other people do because I've done this to them. And like, if you put them into a situation where suddenly, you know, and they won't vocalize this, but they'll feel it. They'll feel it that they're actually, and they'll feel it even more if it comes down in its heads and they have that like sinking feeling like, oh, and that sometimes if, you know, people are really not in touch, they won't even realize they were rooting for tails until it comes heads and they get that sinking feeling. And like, you just got to watch their face or be like, did you have a sinking feeling when you saw it was heads? That means you actually wanted tails. And even you couldn't figure that out. You couldn't dig that out of your psyche. You, you know, that, that was underneath it all. Right. How do we get on this topic? This, this added connection uh, talking about how this is your, one of your TiVo top shows. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so when you prioritize the season pass list, it is an activity that forces you to prioritize. If, if you had to imagine that one of them through your own incompetence didn't get recorded, What's the one, not, not, not what's the one you really want to watch. Like, to me, it's more negative. It's more like, what's the one you'd be crestfallen if you realized yeah. you didn't get and it? And again, it's an, a bygone error when you can just download everything that you wanted whenever you wanted, or it was less convenient and all that other stuff. And the same thing for, like, watching. Like, oh, there's a bunch of stuff on the DVR. What do you want to watch? Like, what's your number one pick? And it's always clear to me. And so my top tier shows, if Game of Thrones is on there, I want to watch it. And Walking Dead is right up there with that one, even though I think it's probably not as good a show, especially perhaps in later seasons. But it's always been up there. Like so, I so basically, The Walking Dead totally has its hooks into me at this point. I am committed to the show, um, and unlike so many other people, uh, I continue to enjoy watching it despite all the things we're going to say about it shortly. Right, right. So, what about you? You were ignoring it, weren't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But for the follow up to you, though, I'm, I'm curious about this. I'm now I'm super interested in what you're talking about with that whole preferences and coin flipping thing. And that's actually something I've talked about a lot. Like when you ask, ask somebody what, where they want to go for lunch and they, they act like they don't care until you say something and they go, nah, I don't want sushi. Nah, I don't want barbecue. Nah, I don't want chicken. Like, you know, you find out what people really think. Um, what was I going to ask you? Um, how, cause I'm thinking, I think I have shows like that too. Like to go back to our, you know, um, I don't know, what do you call it? The Kenning or the way that we were like saying, like, you got your favorites, you got the best, you got the best places to start. But there's, it's weird how there's certain shows that I, I can't exactly describe why I'm so, I don't even want to say loyal, dedicated, but there are just these, these certain shows that I stick with. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. It doesn't matter if it's where it's going. It doesn't matter how this season went. It doesn't matter if the showrunner changed. There's just, there has historically been shows that I just always watch. I think for a lot of people, maybe West Wing, a show like that, we're like, this is this is my show. Like, you know, it's almost like these are my Mets. Like, I'm always going to watch this show no matter what. And I just think it's interesting that, like, for somebody as discerning as you, you can say, for example, I mean, it's not that controversial, but you can say that Breaking Bad is probably pound for pound a better series as a program. But there's a but this has a hold on you in some way. 
the show? Well, like I, w- I would say that, you know, it's things that I find compelling, right? And it is entirely possible for me to stop finding them compelling. There have been shows that had me and then lost me. Like that can totally happen. So it's not as it's not like the Mets. That's why it's a bad analogy because the Mets is like, you know, for life or whatever, like sports loyalties that are nonsensical, not connected to anything. You're just going to keep doing it forever and ever. Like shows can definitely lose me. Uh, but I think the thing that, that keeps The Walking Dead in my top tier, despite quality lapses and some, you know, not so good decisions, is that I am so uh, enamored of the premise. Like that I love, I love those type of stories where everyone is dead and the people who are left alive are forced to make their way in a world where, this, where the rules are entirely different and, and everything mm-hmm. is much more dire and it is... It is revealing of their character in interesting ways. Very similar to Lost, where everyone's not dead, but they're in a situation where aspects of the character that would simply not come out in like a, a Law and Order style courtroom drama or procedural or sitcom or family drama are going to come out when it's life or death, crazy things happening, uh, situations that no one ever, you know, no one ever thought they would find themselves in. That makes for good storytelling. So, yeah, the and, and The Walking Dead. In general, has really good actors and interesting uh, locations and decent writing. It could lose me if it went really bad, if I didn't find it compelling anymore. But because I love the premise so much, that just gives it such an incredible amount of runway to uh, yeah. to do silly things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got it's got real stakes. It's got a it's got a world with rules. It's got privation. I'm thinking almost of like you know. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a sadist or something. It's not like I enjoy watching things where the characters are always in trouble, except that can be very compelling. And But in order to pull that off, uh, you think about, like, a horror movie. I know you're not a giant fan of, like, horror or gore movies, but even, like, let's not even say a gore movie, like a good horror movie or a good, like, scare movie. Like, you really, you have to feel like there's a known, some kind of a known danger that's out of control. Unless it's a psychological thriller, in which case you're crazy or whatever. But you know what I mean. Like, there's got, like look at Alien. Like, Alien, to me, is a good example of this. It's like, in Alien, that's, that's a thriller, right? Because there's stakes. People are going down, you know? And, but part of what makes a show or a movie like that work or not work is if you can keep the stakes up and adding new stakes and twists without trivializing or undercutting what's actually going on. Do you know what I mean? To me, a show like this has a lot to do with whether you buy into... There's a big buy-in, right? Like, do you buy into the premise of this apocalyptic thing? Yes or no? Like, that's okay. But if you are bought in, then you do have to care, to some extent, about the characters. Like, if you didn't care, if they were all just awful. Um, Or, like, in the case of Mad Max or in Fury Road, for example, like, that's pretty bleak. There's a lot of terrible people. Well, you're still pulling for these, for our heroes to make it. But then I think in order to keep it up, you have to at least keep the same level. The, the rules have to stay somewhat similar. The rules can't drastically change. One of the things that made Lost a little frustrating is that the rules did change without any explanation. You can still enjoy it for what it is, but you know what I mean? Watching it as a show where we'll eventually figure out what this means made that frustrating because it felt like none of the rules ever really would stick or apply, and you feel undermined. Yeah, well, this so, show, like I said, the, the the premise, the problem with the premise of Walking Dead is it's nonsensical, and so the, I have to set aside, in, like it it is pre qualified for lost level writing off, uh, because lost is like, oh, there's going to be an explanation, and eventually there aren't, and people are frustrated, but zombies in Walking Dead make no sense at all. Like you have to assume they're magical, and you have to write them off as like 
Don't think about. You the sure zombies. about that? You yeah. sure that? I mean, I I think I disagree. No, I mean, uh, you want me to explain to you why? Because I I I well uh, yes I would I might it may ruin the show for you but <laughs> actually I would really like to hear that oh Rick's been asleep the whole time no no not that Bobby um, Ewing's in the shower no so yeah, the the problem with with the zombie. I mean, it's not a problem because like, obviously I buy in. I just accept it at face value. But I'm saying like that, that it, it it makes the show go over that line immediately. So it's not like a disappointment. I'm not expecting to. But can, like, can I pause just for a second? Because like I I want to hear what you want to say, but I also want to just say there's a good chance that people listening to this. Uh, I know at least one person I, I I know on Twitter who has said I tried one episode and I couldn't watch it. Can I just say as you're explaining this, could you also maybe explain the very basic premise? And what the basic rules are from the beginning. All right, so because I think zom- it would be I think it would be helpful. Yeah, this is a zombie apocalypse show. The idea is there's some kind of a, a pathogen that infects people and it kills them, like just because they get a fever and die or whatever. They get an infection. Uh, only after they die, they essentially come back to life, but they're not really back to life. It's like a, a basic sort of brainstem thing where they become they become zombies. A you know they can walk on two feet kind of slowly. They can look around, and what they're looking for are uh, non-zombie things to eat. You know, they're exactly like zombies. I mean, they don't go for brains specifically like the, the traditional zombies, but, you know. The, the virus the virus makes them attack people without discrimination. They don't have any way that, we're, that we know of for, to think. They have basic kind of slow locomotion, but when there's a whole bunch of them, they're very difficult to overcome. And then once bitten, you get the virus. Yeah, so, well, and, initially, eventually initially. revealed in the show that everyone has the virus already in them, and our main characters in the show are not immune to the virus, they're just carriers. So if anybody okay. dies in this new world, after you're dead, everybody comes back. Yeah, unless please, you, please come back to that. Yeah, come back to that. Yeah. Unless you get shot, in the, unless your brain gets destroyed, in which case then you don't come back, because it's all like a brain parasite thing. So you, your body dies, and then the parasite in your brain reanimates your the body and you become a zombie and you're you're not the person anymore you're not nothing from the old person is left it's very unintelligent thing it's just kind of looking around and making noises and and it's very gory and everything now the the problem with that as a premise for a show is you know even like you know a, a full-size zombie person needs a certain amount of food and water to live right uh mm. and how is something that with those attributes going to find enough food and water to stay alive for any appreciable amount of time. Never mind, like, why wouldn't zombies eat other zombies? Oh, they only want to eat living people. If you're freshly a zombie, you're just as good eating material as a fresh human. Like, it's not as if they have a, a code of the zombie where they don't eat each other. But even setting that aside, it, you could wait this out because these things are not fit to survive in the environment into which they're born. Is that, I mean, do you know that to be true, though? I mean, are they more like a, more like a Jaws or more like a Cthulhu? Well, I'm I saying, mean, like, that's what I'm it... saying. You have to get into magical things. Like, there's a certain number of... They have a circulatory system. They have respiration. They have to keep their bodies oh. alive to continue to locomote or to move around, right? You need a certain number of calories per day and liquid to oh. do that, right? And these things just cannot get that amount of sustenance into their systems to survive. So they would all be gone. Hmm. I mean, they would all freeze to death in the winter in the north for crying out loud they're not making shelters for themselves well, it would certainly be a it would certainly be a wolves and rabbits problem like on, on some level where basically there's just way too many wolves and not enough rabbits no but wolves know how to hunt wolves are you know the only wolves that are left are the ones that figured out how to get food and but the eat virus it and doesn't alive. make you want to eat other zombies that's the thing is if you wear the zombie stuff on you, you i can know get but that but doesn't make any sense like they're, they're if you are freshly uh, a zombie you are just as nutritious to eat like there's no reason that anyway setting aside that like oh it just so happens they don't eat other zombies because it makes sense to the show they just wouldn't stay alive like or you just move to the hmm. north where they would all be frozen to death because they're not making fires or fur coats or shelters and if you're going to say oh they don't 
don't freeze? Are they not made of water? Anyway, it's totally nonsensical, scientifically speaking, right? You, so you have to put that aside, which is fine. I'm Biden. It's a zombie show. I'm not like watching it going, oh, these zombies aren't realistic, right? I buy into it. I totally buy into like, just, just accept that there are zombies that behave because they set the rules. The rules are nonsensical, non-scientific, but it's not a sci-fi show. It's... I don't know, like a horror show, and uh, yeah. and I totally buy it, and it doesn't bother me at all. But it starts it starts as a horror show, but it, yeah, but it means that I'm never in the mode of like, well, you better give me an explanation for these zombies because I know no such explanation is ever going to be forthcoming because zombies are nonsensical and, and just it's ridiculous, right? And so I put them in a box and say that's fine, and like Lost, where I was also like willing to go with anything they were they were gonna, you know. Tell me for the most part, in which case there is mystical, magical things and, you know, good and evil and gods and whatever. Like, fine. You know, that's the show that's going to be. I was never bothered by that. But like Lost, I think the important thing about both of these shows is you put interesting characters in incredibly weird, stressful situations that have nothing to do with their former life, whether it's because they're on an island because their plane just crashed or they were a cashier and all of a sudden someone's trying to eat them and, you know, or they have to, you know... uh, other humans are trying to kill them and they're struggling for survival like put people in interesting extremely stressful situations that they've never been in before such that they become entirely new characters like who you were before and who you are after are so unrelated and i find that interesting that's what those shows were built on yeah. loss was all about these people had normal lives put them in this situation and see how they break down and see how they bounce off each other and i feel like that's exactly what walking dead is to me put these people with interesting backstories that will slowly be revealed together in this terrible terrible environment see how they react to it and see how they bounce off each other and see how what is the new what is the new meta in uh, in destiny parlance of the uh of the post-apocalyptic world and how do they sort it out and that's that's why i'm watching the walking dead uh-huh. did i ruin it for you i hope it didn't no i, I it's funny because i i so yeah i guess i should talk about my history of the show which is extremely spotty uh, i never read the comic um if memory serves my wife got into it very early on and got really into it and stayed into it. And it's just, it's one of those occasional shows that we uh, don't watch together because candidly, uh, I'm trying to remember when it happened. I'm pretty sure I watched, I don't even remember what all I've watched, but I, I've seen a great deal of the first two seasons. I think I was watching it at least, is it Herschel? Is that the guy's name? I feel like I was watching it well into the Herschel period. Now I go back occasionally, like if I'm in a hotel room when I'm traveling, I'll watch it if it's on, we get it on broadcast TV for some reason. We get it on like a, in syndication at like 10 o'clock in a edited format. And I've gone back and watched it. But what it came down to for me was even in, and I have to really even clarify here, even in the first two seasons, uh, it was too much for me. And I, you, mean, you mean the gore specifically? Yeah. Well, and the reason I mentioned that is that I, now I've gone back and I started watching around little bits in the third and fourth seasons because you know you talking about Carol maybe you want to go back and see more Carol stuff so I'm going to go back I may go back all the way to the beginning and start at the beginning because I think it's worth it but you know uh, there's these characters that I've really gotten attached to that I don't know or remember how things started with them I'm setting aside Rick and his group but um, but there's at least three phases in the gore with this. Oh, oh, so, so, okay, so that's the basics. It's like, for a long time, I just couldn't handle it. Like, I've watched a lot of gross stuff. I used to love slasher movies, but at a certain point, this show became too much for me. Uh, and, you know, as I was explaining to somebody today, it's like, it's really gross in season one. You get into season three, it's, it's getting grosser. Something happened in the last couple seasons where it has gotten... It's not that the gore's different, it's that the effects... See, I mean, do you agree? Like, the effects are 
just astonishingly lifelike and no seams. Like it, just, it really looks like you're seeing somebody get an arrow through their eye. It's, yeah. I mean, if you look at like season one, season three, and now, don't you notice a marked difference in especially the, the zombie effects? I haven't gone back, but like, you know, I'm not into horror movies or gore and, uh, I, I don't like that kind of movie, but I guess because for the same reason I just said that I put the, the zombies in a box here, uh, and, and said that they are, you know, they are what they are. The gore on The Walking Dead has not only never bothered me, but never even like, it's not like I'm able to take it or weather the storm or whatever. I've, it has always looked like, uh, you know, put your hand in this bowl of grapes. These are eyeballs. Put your hands yeah, in, in the yeah. cold spaghetti. This is witch's hair. It has always been just like corny to the point of like so over the top and so silly, as if the human skulls made a paper mache and filled with tomato sauce. Like, you know, like really? it just, just so no connection between the the destruction of these monsters and any kind of living thing. And so not because I'm I, I'm uh, you know really good at handling gore because I'm not like I'm Starship Troopers I remember getting like nauseated in the movie theater watching that's like that's my limit that's over my limit but the Walking that, Dead that's that's that aliens getting destroyed uh it it was mostly people being skewered by aliens and there's a, yeah. looking at it in retrospect I'm not quite sure why maybe I had food poisoning or something but I just felt, I felt it was just <laughs> you know I'm not big on gore but the Walking Dead never bothers me because it just seems so silly and cartoonish um. And I, I can't tell, yeah, not that they're bad effects, but I can't tell how much of the show is trying to be like, you know, shocking people with the gore. I feel that more like on Game of Thrones, I guess it's because it's real people getting hurt, whereas zombies, like, they're just silly, nonsensical monsters anyway, and they're all filled with goop and, you know. Well, yeah, and this is, this is, this gets to the important part in, in my journey with this is, you know, it, I eventually realized and have to re-realize something that I guess most people understood by the end of the first episode, which is... It's almost like uh, – I mean the, 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 the walkers are not the star of the show. They are an extremely important plot device. I mean obviously – I mean, how do I say that without sounding like I'm trying to sound clever? It's like we said back on The, the Incomparable. The, the, the zombies are basically weather. Like it's man versus environment, and the zombies. I was going to say like I was going to say like the sea, like like the ocean. Yeah, like, it's, if, it's you're, the, if you're on a boat. Man versus nature yeah. story or whatever. Yeah. Right. And so – but the as – you, as you watch it and keep watching it – so to answer your one question, I think one reason they ramp up the effects is because they can. I think also being the kind of story it is, we have to never feel like walkers are a solved problem. That always has to feel like something that could come up somewhere. You have to always be vigilant. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part. That's, that's part, so? a part of where they uh, – no, I agree with you, but I feel like they, they fail in that endeavor. I, I think you're right that they, they want to be able to keep that like so it doesn't become rote because you know you take, you take all the tension out of the show. It can't just be eventually humans versus humans, even though realistically speaking, after a certain number of years, the humans will have essentially – like even with the magic zombies as they exist in the thing, you would think the people left would be able to deal with them in such a systematic way that it would be not as much of an issue, but they, they, <laughs> well, they, still, tried, they tried, they tried this season. It didn't go so yeah, great. They, they want to maintain, they want to maintain the threat. Now I'm not entirely on the same page with you that they're actually ramping up the gore. Like obviously the effects get better. You can see the seams and the CG additions and stuff a little bit more in the early seasons, just because of the march of technology and stuff like that. But, you didn't think that you didn't think Sunday night's roadblock was a little intense. No, like, I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm used to it in all of them. So maybe I'm not as big a judge, but the, the one, the bits I find most affecting on the show are when humans like, get attacked by the zombies like a human that you care about has is you know disemboweled while they watch and for the most part they haven't really ramped that up here's what i would consider ramping that up ramping that up would be like you know 
a mother and child and the mother yeah. being disemboweled while trying to talk to the child to encourage her to run away and she slowly can't talk can't speak anymore because eventually she can't muster the air from her lungs as they're devoured by the zombies and eventually the child doesn't run away and gets killed too like that would be ramping it up right. because you care about humans being dead in the same way that like i can't watch movies with like like horror movies with people being hurt people suffering and for the most part they don't like there's like a, one or two seconds and they show you some juicy bits of blood and then like it's over they don't they don't draw it out in, in a more realistic way to really reveal the actual suffering that would go on. People yell and scream, red is there, <laughs> music swells, and then you go to commercial, right? Which is, you know, it's a television show. They're not, it's not supposed to be, uh, you know, a, a real hardcore horror type thing. But even that is, is distressing enough for people. But, you know, zombie deaths don't bother me at all. Human deaths, I feel like, have always been kind of encapsulated in a, I'm not going to say TV-friendly, but maybe a modern TV-friendly way. And this is not to dismiss anyone who's grossed out by the gore. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't be grossed out by the, by right. the gore. Like, if that's, it's kind of a shame. Like, in the same way I've told the story before, my, my mother couldn't watch Goodfellas because there was too much cursing. Yes. <laughs> it's like, yes. God, what a, what a great movie that is, and you are prevented from enjoying it because you don't like strong language or don't like I know, and from, from my point of view, that, that, that seems... Not priggish. What's the word? It seems, uh, with all respect, Miss Syracuse, because apparently she listens to the show. <laughs> but um, she doesn't remember it, saying that about Goodfellas. It's all right. Okay, good. <laughs> um, but uh, it's it's a shame though that like that kind of asterisk keeps you from watching and enjoying it. Okay, so so just to get back to this. Oh, what about Alicia Witt when she dies? That was that was pretty rough. Which one was she? I don't, the, I don't know actor. Names. Oh, that was in the bottle episode. Um, she was the main oh yeah, lady. yeah yeah no yeah. I mean, even, even that one, they start peeling their skin off like it's just like attached, like like with barely with latex glue. Like, yeah, yeah. It's it's. A, I mean, the silliness draws me out of it, and it's not. It's not that I don't appreciate the character deaths, or but it's but it's almost as if it's like a binary thing. It's like, and they entered, you know, and they've gone to an off state, you know, and 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 like, I think if you're gonna have a zombie show. Put in the gore because if if people don't like oh it's a shame you don't like Walking Dead because it's a good show but but you can't take the gore well then you don't like the Walking Dead and which is fine there are plenty of shows that people don't like for whatever reasons I think it is it is being true to itself and it has the fans that that are appropriate to have there is no sense making a zombie show and then trying to make it in a way that people who don't like this kind of gore can watch it because then you're disappointing the right. people who do like the gore or whatever well and also I mean like for me as a lapsed and returning viewer. Being reminded of that plot device is very important. So the, now to get back to the part that shows you what a dumbass I am, the thing I need to re-realize, -re it's about the people on this show, or in a larger sense, in a more like Zola-esque sense, it's about this much bigger wide shot about how, how people treat each other when they're put into these kinds of circumstances. And that, that ends up obviously being the most interesting part of the show, because that's what helps you start pulling for this group or that group. The arc of Rick's group over the past few, you know, episodes and seasons, you know, they seem like the good guys. They seem like they're not necessarily the good guys. They seem like, oh my God, these guys are monsters. Back to like in context, seeming like the quote unquote good guys. It's like, there's no good guys in this show. Like it's everybody. And, and, but this is going to get us to where we eventually land. I think is that like this show has to be relentless. This show to be successful. Now that I've, I've made my peace with the gore, I, I'm attached to the characters. I, I like the ensemble parts, but like there is this, there is this little hum in my head that's always testing this against how awful it should be. Like even living in Alexandria. Right and being being kind of comfortable. I'm like, okay, well, they can't be too comfortable there, or that's not going to be this show. I, I I love these people, but they also we still need to have that feeling that there's another group or there's another you know group of walkers out there that could 
they can't it can't become Gilligan's Island. They can't just be driving around in coconut golf carts and stuff like that. There's got to be this sense that something the stakes are still there. And so that's why it's frustrating to me when I feel like they I don't want to see anybody die, but they have to because that's the show. Like for this show to be they need to they need to be in life or death situations and they need to have to make decisions that are revealing of their character difficult decisions decisions they didn't expect to make decisions in which there is no good choice like that's what the show is is based on like but it also needs to be it needs to be um hobbesian like it needs to be a little bit uh, random like in order for this show to make sense like any kind of show like this you you i mean there has to be like for example killing janet janet lee early on in Psycho. Like, genius move. Nobody in a million years would have ever... Sorry, spoiler for a movie from 1961 or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, but but that, that, that was apparently very surprising to people in the theater just because she was billed as the star of the movie. The Most of the first reel is about her. And when she dies in that movie, it's doubly, triply disturbing, you know, because they thought she was the star and how could she die in the first half hour of this movie? I feel like in order for this to succeed, and I really feel like I, now I sound like a crazy, like a crazed sadist. But I feel like when you watch a show like this, or when you watch a horror movie, you know, if in order to make a movie about this kind of situation, the stakes have to be there. The people who are watching it have to be bought into the fact that that could happen. The hero could die any time, and the people who make it like have to keep those stakes up, or they have to change in a way that's sensible given the environment as we understand it. Yeah, that's a that's a fine line they walk though because there's many ways uh, a show like it was. I'm not keeping up with the comic books. I don't know how the comic books deal with this, but there is uh, there is such a clear arc to the first handful of seasons, which is why you you should watch them. I don't know if you want me to to spoil some of that arc for you, but there's I feel like there's such a clear arc to that, a natural arc as a consequence. I'm, I'm going to watch them either way, so, so it's you, fine. You, know, yeah. you said you've seen a lot of season one or season two, but like the the central arc. I mean, Rick is our main character. We start on him. He's our he's our star of the show, essentially, even though it is totally an ensemble show. Um, and he is our proxy for a generally good person who has, you know, have their problems, have some marriage troubles or whatever. Maybe your life wasn't perfect before, but generally wanting to do the right thing. And over the course of, you know, I think the first three seasons or so, and maybe it's just the first two, it always seems like so much bigger when it's early in the show's history. He has to come to terms with what it means to be a good guy in this new world. Um, the, the big, the big, uh, it's not turning point, maybe the climax, maybe, I don't know. What, one of the, the bends in the knee of this graph is, I think it's the end of the second season, where, did you, did you see the end of the Herschel, Herschel thing with the whole farm and everything? I have, but I don't remember it. Right. So anyway, the, the the farm the farm situation resolves itself in the typical Walking Dead way, with lots of people dying and everything going to crap. And you know, they lulled you into thinking that you know we're going to be okay in this farm. And let's have all sorts of interpersonal situations. Just everything goes to hell because that's the way it works in the show, and that's the way it should work. And as you noted, that's that's the way the show works. Um, everything goes to hell after rick trying mightily for two seasons trying mightily to hold it together with these people to hold it together with his wife to hold it together with this guy that his wife was cheating on him with to all the right. other stragglers coming in he's got a son there to keep the, to keep his son safe how do i raise my son in this world where there are zombies you know do i give him a gun do i give him not give him a gun do i protect him is it possible to protect them and now i find out my wife is pregnant like just he's trying so hard to do the right thing to be the good guy or whatever and by the end by the time the farm stuff goes down it's like the last scene of that season everyone is like it's nighttime they're running from zombies everyone's going this way and that way no one knows which end is up and he's like all right 
New World Order. Everybody shut up. You're listening to me. I am not being Mr. Nice Guy anymore. I'm telling you what we're doing. You don't like it. You can leave. I am in charge. Like, the first time he just, you know, just snaps after what he's had to do to, to finish that season, he's like, this is the new Rick. This is the new World Order. I am sick of this crap. There is no way, like... The, the previous rules of my life, I have to discard all of them. And you may think, watching the current season, oh, that seems like he's something he realized very recently. But no, they're kind of repeating some of the same arcs, which is another problem with the show. That there was a natural build from previous world to the new world, and seeing him change like that, especially since his character had been defined for two seasons by being like, you know, you felt for him. You're like, Rick is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to keep people from... from being terrible to each other and killing each other and he's trying to keep everybody alive and no one will listen to him and he's got all these problems and it's just like he turns the corner um that i feel like is the natural solid arc of the show after you've done that where do you go from there then you end mm-hmm. up in a situation where like you like you said you need to keep the stakes up but the line you have to walk is if you just keep killing off the characters that everybody loves people be like well, i'm not watching anymore because whoever i become attached to they're going to kill them all right so how do you walk the line between keep the characters that everybody loves alive but kill off enough people <laughs> to keep the stakes up on the show. And well, part, part, part of it is like occasionally folding in people from other groups or stragglers from the various places they end up going. You have to make new characters for people to love. It has to be a characters that people love factory. Because if it isn't, you will kill all the ones that people love and you'll be left <laughs> in a show that no one wants to watch. So you have to introduce new characters. And I kind of think that the show has been like, we hope that this character, the new character we introduce, will become one that you you come to love. Uh, if not, we'll kill them and try again, <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, so Rick's still alive, right? Spoilers. It's a, it's a spoiler for the whole thing. Rick is still alive. Uh, but they've killed a lot of characters off who seem like they were major characters, and other ones that seemed not so important, like Carol, she's still around too. You know why? Because she turned out to be a really great character, right? Um, it's not to say that it's entirely, like, the hand of the writers is in the show, but that's that's the line they have to walk. So it's it, was that was that a case with Merle for a long time? I read things that say that Merle stayed around, that um, Daryl's brother stayed around longer than anybody wanted. Like like that, he was basically given more importance than the audience thought. Even well, you can you can see where they if they write a character in, like there's so many characters that appear for an episode or so, very, and very often they don't die. Like they they you encounter them, especially in the early seasons, you would encounter someone, and there would be some sort of interaction that would be revealing of somebody's character, and then they would run off. Right. And you're like, well, I'm never going to see them again. But if it turns out that they were a character that either the audience or the writers thought was great, like Merle has this whole big thing in season one where he's trapped and he disappears at a certain point. That could have been the last you've seen of Merle. And suffice it to say, he dies off camera. But somebody, if not the audience, then at least the writers thought, you know what? Merle is pretty great. And if we bring him back, we can have this whole thing with his brother that is, you know, a a B or C plot for an entire season. So let's bring him back. And you, in this world, people can run off and they can come back and they can run off and they can come back. And it's, it's reasonable for that to happen. It's, they could, they could appear to die in a dumpster full of walkers uh, and actually be oh, mostly okay. Uh, yeah, so. but, but, we'll get to that. Yeah. But, the, but the, for the minor, that's, it's, it's a very difficult test to have ahead of them for all the reasons that you said that they really have to strike that balance. But if you're going to kill a bunch of people, you better be making new people the characters. Well, then at a certain point, no matter how good you do your job, you're on season 17, it just becomes a farce. And you're like, well, right, I right, can, right. I, I'm not bought in anymore. So season six, we should we should dive in here before we go too long. Yeah. Um. So they – was Alexandria – did Alexandria start last season or is that this season? Is that all this season? I think it was two seasons ago. I think they've been. I think 
they well they were they came what, what upon were they at the, Alexandria. What were they at the prison the, the was the prison before that yeah so it, the, the prison was another like they, they keep doing these reset arcs so the, the prison was another like farm situation where they they come to a setting they're gonna if spend, they got a nice big spend, ad, they got a nice big place it's got a fence around it surely this will be a place where we can go and domesticate and and live our lives such as it is in peace right and there's always internal problems and then uh increasingly in as the seasons have gone on there's also an external threat the farm there wasn't so much external threat of other humans there's, there's, there's always there's the walkers but there's always other the best part in some ways or the really compelling part is the other groups that wanted arguably even more and it's hard to know whether they are more hardcore than you like whether they're like crazier and more deadly than you or in some cases like whether they are totally soft and you would just run over them and you may not know until it you know really comes down to it that's happened several times yeah or whether their system for survival though it may look weird to you is actually a superior system for survival like is it a better that you, you know, that's like sustainable it, yeah, yeah. is it a better fit for the environment like that's the question they're always asking themselves in the show is whenever they encounter another group of people and see how what rules those people have adopted for survival and the structure of their society right all right. of them have to question is that the better because every, well, everything's up for grabs is that the better way to do things in in general right, right. the cannibal rapers you're like no not for me like okay they're doing it wrong right but everything <laughs> else in between you're like eh, you know is our system so great we're, we're killing people well, too like, you, you know, know you start out you might start out being a rick type at the beginning and go well like i'd really like to believe that with a little bit of hard-nosed common sense we should be able to get along with people and we should be able to like be at least to, to the extent possible with with some sanity be like just and fair and kind and then you discover oh you know actually we really need to bulk up on security because there are a lot of agents of chaos out there that don't think that way yeah and you got to shoot so first like and all ask of your worst later. fears yeah yes yes exactly yeah and and that's tough that's a tough sell for law and order kind of i'm a, i'm doing the right thing although like i do, do think especially if you go back to the early seasons you'll see the external threat from other groups of humans was almost non-existent early on. It was all internal threat from your group, and you would encounter another person and incorporate them into your group, and then they become an internal threat. It was only really, mm-hmm. I think, with the the governor plot line where it really started to get up like, no, there's another organized group of similar size to you, and they are an important external threat, often led by some charismatic crazy leader who you, whose psyche you delve into and becomes a I remember really like liking that. the episodes with the governor that I saw. There's one in particular where a lot of people die, including maybe the governor, that I uh, so this is season four, he was, comes around, something like that. Yeah, that, 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 I remember thinking that was pretty prime stuff. That, that ramped up to a little bit of an absurd degree. But one of my, but like, but this is the arc of, of the show later on. And like in the beginning, it's like let's just figure out how we're going to survive. And again, internal threats and like internal conflicts, pre-existing internal conflicts. Like, oh, I'm, my relationship with my wife is on the rocks because she was cheating with somebody, and both my wife and the guy she was cheating with are in my group. That is totally an internal threat. You're worried about the zombies, mm-hmm. you're worried about people dying and all that other stuff, but it's not as if there's another group of organized people like the governor's group or the saviors who are out there. Who, you know, because you're not at that point in sort of the evolution yet. So, But as time has gone on, as I think is appropriate, that becomes so much more what the show is about, uh, is these other groups and figuring out, you know, is their system of rules better than ours? I think one of the another one of the, the good arcs was the, the Terminus thing. Did you watch any of that? Oh yeah, Terminus is like, well, boy, once we, oh god, with the truck, like once we get the Terminus, everything's going to be fine. We just need to get to Terminus. Yeah, yeah. So, the, and then were, it turns out they've got a pretty mature system there. Yeah. So I think I I lose track of this, so maybe I'm getting the timelines wrong. But at a certain point, after one of their like homesteady things went down, it might have been when the farm burned, it might have been when the prison was gone, or whatever. They they backslide. There's a lot of lot of regression where you feel like they're making progress. They have everything settled and then everything goes to hell and they're back in it. And one of the most recent ones is they're like, 
No one's getting any sleep. Everyone's on watches. They're eating cat food in houses that they find, barely staying alive. Everyone is basically zombies themselves. Like, they have nowhere to live, nowhere to stay, on constant guard uh, against zombies. You know, not other humans. On constant guard against zombies, just looking for food, water, and shelter day to day, right? And that's like, you know, and I think it was like in season three or four there at that point. One, but they, you know, whole scene of them eating cat food out of cans in some house. And it's like, oh, you had it in the farm. You had your feet under you, but maybe you weren't experienced then. And then Rick mm-hmm. sort of had his Turner moment. And he's like, no, we're going to do it right. And we're going to, you know, protect and, and not be so trusting and shoot people. And then, but then you had the governor and then that all went to hell. And it, like, it's just now we're, it's like we're back to square one. And Alexandria was uh, another one of another one of those arcs where it's like they were becoming feral again. Like they had the scene where like this small group of people took them and they were going to just like kill them and eat them or, or like rape the women and, and, you know, kill their children and do all sorts of terrible things. And like, they, they have to do what it takes to survive. And, you know, it's just so grim and so dark. And then coming on Alexandria where people living like it's in the suburbs, you know, and that was another, another upswing of like, you people don't know how to survive out in the world, but maybe the world has changed us in ways that makes us unable to live in a, an organized society. And so they settled in in Alexandria and then we're going back down the other arc now. Like, oh, I, we've got it all figured out. I've accepted these people. We're a cohesive group. And now the preemptive strike in this season uh, and the other existential threats from the other groups. Is it the W head people? Is it the saviors? Is it Negan? Whatever's out there. Uh, season six that we're getting into now is in theory about the people who are currently in there, I don't know if it's the high or low, but in, you know, in the cycle of the thing, they're nested in Alexandria and it's a recognition that not only uh, is their nest not safe, but uh, and not only have they not figured out the best way to survival, but like while they've been doing this, there's been other shows airing, like an alternate universe Walking Dead's airing with other groups that for, you know, for better or for worse, their system has resulted in more firepower, more people power. They have a larger army than you. They have more weapons. You are outnumbered. And their system may look terrible. Well, they figured out they've they figured out how to do something you have not, you know, uh, previously figured out how to do. Whether that's you know a, a a pirate style distribution pillaging system or some way to exact loyalty out of people, like somebody has figured out how to scale up on something you may not even have known was possible. Right. Let alone having resources you didn't know still existed. It, it's like it, you know again with with the rule sets like why. Um, in the modern world, a a system that is how we are led to believe Genghis Khan ran his show does not seem like it would be a winning strategy for uh, amassing power and wealth. But Genghis Khan did a really good job of that using tactics and organizations that probably wouldn't fly in the modern world, right? But, maybe- but it's, it still matters to have the high ground, um, good weapons, and the element of surprise. Yeah. That, that has mattered for millennia. And the whole, you know, pillaging and killing everybody. And it's like things that we would, you know, that would label you a monster in modern times were just part and parcel of box standard warfare back in the day, right? Um, and, well, yeah, and, and being able to to destroy morale or your confidence in the leader, right? And 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 having those activities not destroy morale in your own people, essentially, like which is again stretching the truth of the show because these are modern people who who their morale would be destroyed by seeing their leader be be you know terrible. Although I don't know, maybe the Nazis once again are a counterexample here because they they were modern citizens in essentially a modern world, and they were able to, I guess pretend it wasn't happening or not think about it or ignore it or you know what i mean but anyway uh either way these opposing groups are you know the the realization in season six is supposed to be uh in this case uh you're it's not all going to go to hell 
because of internal reasons or some megalomaniac outside that you're not prepared for. You think you're prepared for everything, but you have you have made a scope error, like a, an order of magnitude error. You don't understand the size of the threat that's out there. Um, and you're, you're sort of high on your own supply. You know, we're going to do preemptive strike against these Negan guys. We're going to get half the stuff from the hilltop. We are unstoppable. We're working together. We've got this all figured out. You just don't have enough people. And your system is still too kind and gentle compared to these other people. So, like, I think that's a reasonable arc for this season. But it, the way they got there was not particularly sturdy. Why don't you? When did we go first? Your when did we? When did we first hear about Negan and start? Was it, it must have been early this season? We started hearing about Negan, and basically, how did it become conventional fan wisdom? that Negan's definitely going to kill one of your dudes. How did that become something everybody had just decided was going to be a thing? Well, I, I think every season, especially as the show ages, people are saying, who's going who's gonna to get it this time? Because they did introduce a lot of characters that we, you know, that we cared about, right? Because you know, the, all the people they saw in Alexandria, a bunch of them died, but some of them lived and became, you know, maybe not regulars, maybe not part of the core group, but close. Like, uh, what's his name? But like the, uh, the like stick the... guy. What's the stick guy's name? Yeah, is Stick Guy the guy? From, Stick Guy is not the guy from the beginning who's from the Wire. That's a different guy, right? But like Stick Guy, Ace from, Stick Ace Guy, you from, got uh, um, Jericho. Remember, I think he was the guy in Jericho. Okay, yeah. in, uh, Jericho Parkway, and, <laughs> the and then you got um, Parkway Turnpike Turnpike. What's it called <laughs> Jericho Boulevard? Turnpike. You've got um, oh the awesome uh, lesbian uh, medical lady. Yep. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting how she has overshadowed the one from earlier seasons, who's her girlfriend. Right, who used to be kind of part of the the B and C players, um, and then it kind of transitioned where you don't see as much of her anymore, and you see more of the the Alexandria psychologist turned doctor person until she gets right. an arrow through her eye, and then you don't see her anymore. Oh my god! Oh god! But like that that's episode. what you're looking for is like we made some characters that you care about, and we're going to pick them off. Every season has that to some degree, right? And so I feel like because it has to, it's 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 part of the show. It's got to right. happen. And because this is season six, people are looking for someone from the core group like they, they killed so many people from what we thought was the core group and especially as the show goes on it be, it starts to be strained credulity more and more that there is this core protected group because like well i'm one of the major stars you can't kill me right yeah see it seems improbable that somebody would make it that long but then you've also got it must be said you've got a i don't know how exactly it i know that in some episodes it you can actually go and pull up panels from the uh, comic and they're extremely similar but I mean one thing as long as we're spoiling everything the person who is supposed to die I believe at Negan's hand at the end uh, oh don't tell me I don't want to know oh wait so you haven't watched it yet I've watched the season 6 but I don't know in the comic book Oh, okay like they Um, they make it in the show they make you they show like six different people it could be so I know of the you know I know who the choices are but I don't want to know who the comic book says Negan kills okay but, but I guess then it's just worth saying that that is a constant thing to also keep in mind is, you know, even if you're trying to avoid spoilers, you still have to consider that people who have read the comic book, which is well past this point, know what should happen in the comic book. And it's it's difficult to just dismiss that because that's what it's based on, right? Yeah, and I don't mind them diverging. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, another situation, that, another show that I think handled this a little bit better. Again, a show with source material that I haven't read. Where what best case scenario what they're going for is, yeah, there's a core group of characters that you care about, and we introduce new characters for you to care about all the time. But at any point, you as the viewer should not feel like anybody's safe. And I feel like in The Walking mm-hmm. Dead, Rick is safe. Like a- after a couple seasons, you realize 
you know, eventually you can kill off Rick towards the end of the of the run of the show. Sure, kill him off, right? But in the in that middle part, you're like, all things considered, Rick is safe. But lots of other people, you're like, they're not so safe. And and you start getting a core group together. We thought, okay, so Rick is safe. Glenn is safe. I think Glenn is safe for in story reasons because I think Glenn's character is the ultimate survivor. He's resourceful, smart. Uh, you know, he's he's going to survive. Um, that's why I feel like his his faint at death in this season was somewhat excusable because come on who's gonna ever think that glenn's got he his whole point is that he's a survivor he's the smartest one there he's the best survivor he's the most resourceful even though it was a silly thing to do because they were just trying to uh to tease who they were going to kill in the season um but uh you know daryl because he's so popular like i feel like he's kind of safe um and what i compare it to is game of thrones where i haven't read the game of thrones books um and having not read the game of thrones books i can tell you that watching the game game of thrones seasons up to this point i was constantly surprised at who lived and who died and that's because i hadn't read the book but also because there was never this core group that i could say well these guys are definitely not dying at least not in season one or two i mean maybe towards the end of the story they die in a noble sacrifice but you know and i was just always wrong about who was going to die and that that i think gets is a better representation of what you were talking about earlier that it's supposed to seem uh you know arbitrary and random just like you know real death would be like there is no story being told and no author's hand in this um and so best case scenario that's what you produce and to the degree that the audience feels characters are protected by their main characterness or by their belovedness you are failing to produce a world in which uh you know no one knows who's going to die and the reason i think about that is like you know it was like it becomes it starts to become implausible these people would survive i don't think it's so much implausible that they would survive so long it's who survived so long that that you know the fact that you could know who was going to be in the beginning are you caught up on game of thrones do you watch it no i don't oh yeah but also but also that like you should (laughs) yeah i guess but but also that uh if you think and this is this gets us to one of my numerous problems with especially the whole episode really but especially the end of the episode is that you know we have come to expect that um the, the it's a little bit like I know you're not super into comics, but over the years, it's interesting to watch the evolution of of the Joker in the Batman comics, where he used to be, initially all of the Batman villains were very silly. You know, you had the Riddler doing his silly riddles, and it seemed more like he was had a crush on Batman than anything else, and he would like, oh, shoot poison gas at him or something. But by the time you get to Alan Moore's Joker comic, which is a very controversial comic called The Killing Joke, as many things as that comic did that I, in retrospect, I wish they'd maybe done differently, what we get out of the Joker is that there's stakes. This comes through in the Dark Knight movie. Uh, I don't know if you're a giant fan of that, but like, I like the way the Joker comes across in that movie because now that there, it is dark, it is bleak, but there are definitely stakes. This is a formidable opponent, but also in the case of the Joker, what makes him probably the greatest comic villain of all time is that he needs Batman and he's trying to convince Batman that Batman needs him. This is a thread that gets played out a lot that basically they are the only two nemeses that can bring each other to what they're truly capable of. It's just the Joker realizes it and Batman doesn't. And that tension gets played out in, in very interesting ways sometimes. So in the case of this show, for this show to work, the walkers have to always be a threat. There never has to be a day where suddenly, oops, we misunderstood the virus. You just need to put hydrogen peroxide on it and you'll be fine if you do it in five minutes. That always needs to be a thing. They're always, right? That needs to be there. The fact that there's limited resources always has to be there, so on and so on. But there also has to be this sense that, and again, I sound like a sadist, but that when you're facing a big bad, a Joker-like villain, like somebody who's really who's not afraid to be a little bit crazy, Charlie Manson, like capricious killing machine, 
like it has to comport with the rules that went through the rest of the game, right? And so like some monologuing can be okay. A lot of monologuing is not something this, this somebody on the show would ever do in a certain situation. It's just I feel like they got like three or four notes super duper wrong in a, in a very important episode. And that's that's what bummed me out. It's like I and I don't I want to hear what you say before we get to the big spoiler, but like I was just the thing is to me like it's one thing to be like a Charlie Manson kind of like, oh, look at me, I'm crazy, I live in the walls kind of guy. It's another thing to have a villain who just walks up and in the interest of conserving energy lines you up so he can kill three of you at a time without asking you a question. That, I, I, obviously, that's the kind of villain you need to be scared of. Somebody who gathers his entire, entire tribe in the middle of the night to put on a little play for 10 minutes before deciding what he, like, who's that going to impress? It's... Well, I, and that's the, that's where it falls apart for me. Is like when now now the big bad is revealed to be more like this like community college Jim Jones character. Of, of all the things that this season and that episode in particular uh, did, had uh, missteps, I think that was at least among them. Mostly because I don't know anything about Negan and his group, but it's clear that they have pee pee uh, pants, John. Pee pee pants. They have a lot. Of, they have a lot of people, and they have a lot of resources. And getting back to Genghis Khan. I think one plausible way to amass that kind of power in the post-apocalyptic world is by being a ruthless, charismatic showman. It is a very standard trope, especially in post-apocalyptic worlds, where how would you get all these people to follow you? You can't just get them to follow you by being the meanest and the most ruthless. Like, oh, you do anything wrong and I Totally agree, totally agree. You won't have a lot of people, you know? So this whole show... And the fact that all the people are there is reinforcing your, like you said, Jim Jones-style hold over these people. Now, it's a little bit hammy. I feel like the governor was even more hammy. At least the governor had inner demons that he was fighting. But it seemed less plausible that the governor could hold together all these people. Whereas this guy seems charismatic, and it seems like whatever system he's got going, they would follow him. And these performances are an important part of him maintaining his hold on power. Kind of. I mean, I, I kind of agree. And I, like, what I I love the fact that the governor was like chewing on the scenery for so much of his stuff. The parts that I that I can recall. What I'm saying here is that like I don't I don't disagree. But like, first of all, they 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 telegraphed for the entire season that this guy was the baddest of the big bads. Uh, even though he obviously had a lot of people working for him who we met who weren't the sharpest knife in the drawer. Let's set that aside for a minute. You could tell from that pan once they've got everybody at the camp, that this is like the meanest gang in town, right? They're definitely telegraphing that these are the people who are, these are the Marines, or this is the SEAL Team 6 of The Walking Dead. They've got the most powerful, maybe not the smartest, but certainly the most powerful well, uh, powerful and motivated. We're the most numerous people, because like they did, they got taken up by but they a were huge. They were all huge. They, there was, there were no, there was nobody who looked like, like Carol or Maggie in that group. Well, yeah, but, they, not but this, a lot was, of, this was the muscle, though. Like, you would assume that this is the, the this is the muscle of this crew. And these that, are all the enforcers. Right, like, that the, they, yeah, and the, that it sort of is self-selecting eventually, because as you send out the various crews of people to do things, the ones who don't come back are the weaker ones. But anyway, I have no idea what his numbers are like, but presumably it's not all muscle heads, but it could be. I don't know. But, but I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't know, and I, I guess I... I, I thought his performance was theatrical to a fault because if there's anything that he would want to show in front of that group is that he's a no-nonsense person. Oh. And so, like, going through the whole eeny, meeny, miny, mo to me, to me, like, if he wanted to really be, like, a good Joker character, I think, first of all, he has to kill Rick. Or and or or do something well, that diminishes Rick. Like, he's got to kill the leader. Uh, that Genghis Khan but, would not go and play right, but, a little but, Rubik's but Cube game think, with the leader. I don't think he is Genghis Khan or the Joker. He is, I, I think the system, as I understand it, 
um it, because we've seen that before in other things like like i think one of the most effective i think what you would enjoy is the most effective uh, maybe not joker like but even a, a darker type thing is the uh, the terminus one where the deal in terminus system they worked out is like just don't think about it if people wander in uh just kill them immediately and eat them like don't don't bother fretting over it don't figure out who they are don't make friends with them and so in that episode there's a scene where uh, you know the entirety of the the characters that we love and some that we maybe don't are you know, on their knees with their heads leaning over a big trough, like it's just like a slaughterhouse. And the guy's just coming up behind each one of them. You hit him over the head with the hammer, you slip their throat, the blood drains into the tub. Hit him over the head with the hammer, slip their throat, blood drains out into the tub. And it's like, a, and it's a dire situation. Sorry for ruining it for you, but you. you know, so you're saying you're saying you can't repeat that between the governor and terminus. You can't repeat those tropes well, too closely. Well, You've got to do something different. No, not so much that, but it's just that we, you know, we have seen this this strategy before, and this that's one example. There's other people who have exactly the strategy you're talking about, like just immediately immediately kill the pregnant woman, immediately kill the kid, immediately kill the leader of the thing. That is one system sort of the might makes right show that you're the biggest thing have everyone there to see it have everyone living in fear and like and, but in the past seasons we've seen how that falls apart not that saying you can't do it again but i feel like uh it is not an interesting system because we've seen the way i mean you know the way that falls apart like you can't you you end up with the sith in that situation where you just end up with like two who are at each other's throat and that's barely what you can sustain right because eventually there's just one mm. everyone kills everyone until you know you don't get a big group of people like that the system of Negan seems to be don't do that thing where you're like, I'm the toughest guy and we're the baddest crew around and we're going to kill everybody because that eats itself very quickly. Like then eventually guys, within, mm. we've seen this so many times, guys within your own group start killing each other to see who's the toughest there and eventually you end up with two guys again or one guy. And then you're back to square one because if you're alone in this world, it's really bad. If you want to raise up an army, you have to essentially be, you have to essentially, you know, get serfs. You have to get people to serve under you and yeah you have to intimidate Uh them to do it but you don't want them to be like look you don't want to put them in a situation especially this late game stage in the game where the only people left are the people who know how the hell to survive like no one is around who's being carried anymore right right but it's it's almost like hitler hitler needed slaves in some ways like we're not not even slaves but obviously that was part of the plan there's a reason there's two lines at auschwitz but like like in this case it's something where so you're saying his demonstration of this in front of all his other people is uh, I'm overthinking it, and that that is a necessary reminder that th- that there's a place for everyone in this system. And when you break these rules, as he went into so much detail about how hurt he was about his people being killed, like that was him establishing that these are my rules and this is how I govern. Well, I think the important thing is establishing that this is not a death sentence for you. Just because we are enemies does not mean I'm going to kill all of you to win. That you can be part of the system too, like that. You know, he has to. Uh, uh, why bother with? Because, you know, my wife was pointing us out during the season, like uh, during that episode, they kept going to the roadblocks. They could have been killed a million times over. If his goal was to kill them, he could have done it already. And Rick, oh, Rick, insane. Rick is, but they were doing it on purpose. Rick's whole thing is like, you know, if we have the upper hand, we'll kill them. That's our way to You're survive. It's like it's like a cat, like a cat batting at a mouse. No, not even that. It's like he needs them as workers. He needs their labor. And you cannot mm. kill them or put them in a situation where they see that the only way out is for them to kill you. You have to put them in a situation and realize, no, in fact, the easiest way out is for you to not come and try to kill me because there's a, there's a set of rules and they're simple and I'm reasonably fair and I do have to, you know, put my foot down, but I'm not going to kill you all out of like revenge. You killed, you know, again, it's like you killed, okay. you killed all a lot right. of my people more than I'm comfortable with. He's comfortable with a pretty big number because he has no real attachment to his people. It's just a numbers game. But his whole the, the way you amass this labor force is you can't kill everybody you meet. You have to 
bring them into the fold. And usually that's probably going right. to mean like, you're right that maybe like killing off Rick was, you know, he's, you know, if you can read him well enough, if you, if he had watched, Negan had watched the previous five seasons, he would realize that there's nothing you can do to get Rick to sort of bow down. He's never going to, he's going to be plotting his revenge the whole time. And the same thing with a lot of other people in his group, but he doesn't know that. At this point. Like, especially in front of Carl. Right. So, you, you know, there's probably ones that you do have to kill for that reason, but it's clear that Negan's system is find a way to convince you that the best course of action for you is to a not kill me and b go along with what i'm saying because then you become part of the organism and he doesn't care if parts of the organism get eaten the weak parts do badly people Mm -hmm. go out on missions they're not really good at their job some don't come back like that'll sort itself out but it is a better strategy than might makes right my gang will kill everybody else because you don't amass people that way you don't amass people power resources uh that's what he's trying to do now and, and in some ways, it might actually be stronger to not have to show because annihilating everybody, including especially Maggie in this case, uh, it's not not that you're being just. It, it shows that you're not you're not scared of them. Also, you you need them to be in the ecosystem, but also you're not doing it out of an abundance of fear. Yeah, and you have to figure out like we don't know what Negan's uh, his major damage here. Like, is he actually a psycho and enjoys hurting people? Uh, like, and is there going to be some character flaw or motivation that I don't know because I don't read the comic books that is going to inform his character? Right. So, right. but so when he's going e meeny miny mo, which is a little bit cruel to the you know the person watching the season, especially since they're not going to tell you who they kill. I have to believe that he wants to make it look random because it's intimidating, uh, but it could be that he's just nuts and really wants it to be random, or it could be he totally is using all of his skills of, like, you know, personality detection. Like, the reason he's talking and looking at people's eyes is he's trying to figure out which ones of these do I have to keep my eye on? Which one of these should I send a suicide on a suicide mission tomorrow just to get killed off in a way that doesn't bother the other ones? Like he's got to figure out how, which ones are domesticatable and which ones are not. And I think that's what he's trying to figure out. And I'm, I'm my read on his character so far is that it's not random. He's not, he's not like any media minor mode. Fate will decide. He's not the mm-hmm. guy from, uh, you know, no country for old men flipping the coin and allowing fate to decide death because he's obsessed with how chance like, I feel like he is, trying his best to figure out which one is the best one to kill in this situation. Realistically, the writers are figuring out which one they can kill off in a way that does not alienate people on the show, but it's still shocking. Like that, that's the actual calculus going on. But within the world of the show, I feel like he's trying to, to calculate. But anyway, like I, I I think the big betrayal is we wait all the season. You do lots of these feints. You kill one minor character, then you're going to kill off a major one. And like, it's too, it's, it highlights the thing, you know, we want it to, to like you said, feel random and feel like we you never know who's going to go. And this is like, all roads lead to us killing a character, and we're not even going to tell you who it is until the next season, and that just feels a little bit insulting and cruel. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree, and that that is certainly... I, I, when I when we finished watching that episode, I was I was flustered because you know I I don't follow the show as well as you. I'm not as maybe dedicated as you, but I can tell you that by the time they got to the first, second, third roadblock thing, I don't know. Maybe I built it up too much in my head to be this certain kind of thing, but I thought this it really feels like they're dragging this out, and I'm I'm either I'm either getting this all too well or I'm not getting this. But the whole but I just on this show I, I know this is part of the show, but anytime you get people. In this case, on an open road, we have two sets of people who are armed, and they end up just basically having a dick measuring contest. I don't buy that. I don't. I don't buy that from either side. I feel like somebody is going to like get itchy and start shooting, and it's going to go no, down. But at this, Be- at this point, the people who are going to itchy are all dead. Like I, I mostly mm. buy. Like here, here's the thing: the show is always trying to separate expectations too. So these series of roadblocks, the first one, I totally bought as 
All right, that could happen because the people who have lived this long realize you don't just immediately start shooting if you feel like you're at a disadvantage. And in the first situation, they were pretty evenly matched, and it could be both of them are making the calculus of going, eh, not worth it. Or, you know, the roadblock people should be like, our only job is to make them not go through, and the car people are like, our only job is to get her to safety. So, like, I can see them backing off. By this time the second one comes, Rick and his group should have realized, they did eventually by the third one, should have realized that, look, they could have killed us any time they want, and they're not. So something else is at play here. It's like they're just playing with us, right? Which is a different but look. They're, but, but they're also they're also extremely vulnerable because there's not that many of them, plus Maggie's really sick. So they're they're being maybe even more cautious than usual. Right, and and they're desperate. Like, I mean, they have no, you know, they don't have a doctor back where they are. The the half doctor, you know, the psychologist doctor, they had got an arrow through the eye. So, like, they, they're pretty desperate. That What else can they do? They just got to make best effort. But they should realize right. pretty quickly that, like, we are outmatched here, and, and you know our only hope is to continue to, for whatever reason they're keeping us alive. Uh, go with that reason, and it means we get another chance, and we'll just try our best to get you know because we've always you know like the person they were talking to themselves, sort of self talk of saying we've always made it through in the past, we're going to make it through this time. And I like the fact that they were subverting the usual encounters where you know might makes right and Rick's uh, willingness to shoot first and ask questions later is what protects them and everything like that. And they get into a situation with a superior opposing force who doesn't actually want to kill them immediately and it's confusing and it just highlights their desperation and it undercuts their supposed faith in their ability to get things done when they realize sometimes you're just up against it and this group is bigger than you and you're you're not gonna like in all the other situations i was thinking of where again they were in a desperate situations and they got jumped on by two people and they're gonna kill them and they're all tied up it was always like the numbers were pretty much even. Like, you always had a puncher's chance to get your way out. But this is just so overwhelming that it's just disheartening. That's why, it, you know, good to see Rick break down, where it's like, there's no puncher's chance here. It's not like someone's, you know, right. going to come from the side of the woods, and it turns out your your peeps from Alexandria actually followed you, and they'll start shooting, and you'll be, all be saved. If every person of Alexandria showed up right now and were perfectly trained and had, you know, sniper rifles pointed at all their heads, you'd still only kill, like, 5% of them, and right. you'd still be and- dead. And I give them, I give them uh, total points for the third roadblock because, I mean, as one, my wife and I were both like, oh, sh- this is not good. Like, they, they did a great job of telegraphing, like, you know, in the classic kind of three-part joke, you know what I mean? There's, there's, there's something, there's an escalation, and then there's a big escalation. And I, I mean, I don't know to count, but, you know, in the first one, there's a handful, and the second one, there's more. In the third one, there were what? Probably at least, at least like 30 people there it was a show of force like it was increasing not just a force but of capabilities like the, the logs in the road how the hell did all those logs get there they've got equipment they've got people to run the equipment they've got time they're organized like it just shows a level of so you think it was to you think it was to impress in some ways to impress rick's group not, not, to impress, not just to show to them like this them. is what you're dealing with like resistance is futile you we but also are, but also to sell them but you're if i hear what you're saying also to sell them a little bit to like well, hey wouldn't you like to be part yeah, of the team that could could get away to, with this? to sell the ones that were going to be left alive yeah to, to, okay yeah, because, right. because you could say like that and and that is that has been true for the entire series that you see groups of people who are more or less usually good people doing but uh, under the rule of someone who is clearly not good simply because they value their security and stability more than worrying about the details of how, uh, you know, how the sausage is made, so to speak. Um, right, right, right. Yeah, but but like but all that, again, I don't know enough about Negan to say how it's going to actually go and what his deal is going to be, so I'm fine to have him appear in a leather jacket and chew the scenery with a silly baseball bat and stuff. Um, but I, I feel like the, the problems were all in the season leading up to that where – uh, structurally they couldn't figure out what the threat was going to be which could have been kind of their point like 
Alexandria thinks it's the W head guys, or they think it's the saviors, or the guy that that uh, that Daryl met what on his motorcycle. Jesus? What, hap- what, what happened yeah. with Jesus? He or Jesus, or the hilltop people? The hilltop people, the enemy? Well, they seem a little bit bad too. But then these other, like, there were so many feints at who are the bad guys, and that could be seen right. as a weakness in that, like, they it was sort of disjointed, or that could have been the point that what they were going for in the season, which is you should feel like Rick feels, where you think you've got it figured out, but there are so many different antagonists out there that you can't even figure out. Like, who you're even supposed to be fighting against, or... Like, they had the whole thing of, like, is it the right thing to do? It kind of felt like a Battlestar Galactica, like the preemptive strike, Iraq war analogy, is it the, totally, is it the right yeah. thing to do? But even that was just like, well, forget about that now, because now we're worried about this, and now we're worried about that, and now we're worried about should we kill people at all, and now Carol's having, uh, you know, like... It just seemed that it was kind of... Uh, they went in a lot of different directions and turned back really quickly, and if that's what they were going for, I still felt like it was a little bit disjointed. And then... Teasing Glenn's death was silly, even though I think it is totally in character for him to be a survivor, and I never for a second thought he was going to die, um, just because I saw how they were arranging it, and I don't feel cheated or tricked by it, but why bother with it at all? They've established that part of Glenn's character yeah, so it many— feels like it's, it, it feels like a stunt. Yeah, they've done it so many, they've done so many times, like, where Glenn is put in a very difficult situation and finds a way out. Established. We don't need to see it again, and you're just teasing mm-hmm. us. The random death with the arrow through the eye, that's exactly what the show could do. Do you feel like this character is important and safe and you've been seeing her more than her girlfriend? Oh, random arrow through the eye. You never know who's going to get it. That is a Game of Thrones type thing. Um, And then the final one, not showing who you're going to kill. There's no reason to do that except for like structurally outside the show reasons in terms of we want people to keep watching the show. If If we showed you... You would have all summer or, or like, whatever or, you to, know, be contract, at, to be mad about writing, it. Writing, writing challenges, contract negotiations. There are all these outside of the narrative reasons you can come up with. But So, so am I hearing you? you? Your beef is the beef of many people. The, the beef being that, we, that for that scene in this season to have worked, somebody had to die and we had to see who it was. Uh, I don't think you even needed anyone to die. You could have just ended it on him having a speech and, and, and not killing anybody or some other dramatic reveal. Like I, I'm, I'm not so interested in the mechanics of how they get people to continue to watch a show when it comes back. I, I just feel like this season didn't have a clear story for the group. It had lots of little miniature stories, some of which were interesting, but it didn't really build to anything. It just kind of like... All we got was the last little story was the one the season ended on. And it, it could have been rearranged in a different way. Now, again, I don't know how significant Negan's going to be. And I do think there is a larger story here about different systems for origin, organizing large groups of people. And it's a new kind of threat for the group because most of the threats they've had have been megalomaniacs, small groups of people doing bad things or, you know, where they could get out by force or where they, you know, found a group that was very docile and they had to integrate themselves into it. This is a new thing where it's a larger more sophisticated more successful group with a set of rules that they're clearly not going to end up agreeing with but who do not seem like crazed murderers who are going to enslave everybody it seems like there is a system there that you could live as part of in the same way that the hilltop was like maybe they weren't happy and they were kind of annoyed that people were taking half their stuff but they were getting along and they had a they had a part in the thing and then they made tools like they were they were part of the society they were part of the city state or whatever so i'm interested in that future of the show, but this season didn't take any of the characters that I care about or the group as a whole on such a clear arc. Uh, it still it felt like a bunch of uh, short stories instead of a uh, you know a novella, I guess. Hmm. You give me a lot to think about. Right, one one more of my meta complaints uh, about the yeah. show for you to to chew on. This the show the show or that episode the show is this. I mean, 
part of the reason I like post-apocalyptic shows is, uh, I think a lot of the reason a lot of people do is you like to think about how would I handle this or any kind of situation where someone is in a, you know, if someone's shipwrecked <laughs> or whatever, how, how would I handle it in this situation? In, in some essence, you're imagining that in any sort of situation where people are, are taken out of the ordinary. If I was uh, shipwrecked on an Island, if I found myself, uh, you know, stranded after a plane crash, if I found myself in a zombie apocalypse, uh, what would I do or whatever? Um, and part of the frustration and burnout for uh, The Walking Dead is people who are asking themselves that question. In the beginning, you ask yourself that question. You have fun watching people do silly things. You're like, Look, no one, no one is prepared for the zombie apocalypse. No one, no one expects a zombie apocalypse, right? No one knows what <laughs> right. they're doing. Um, and as the seasons go on, the people who don't know what they're doing die. And you start to recognize them when they appear on the screen in the show. And you're like, that guy's not doesn't get it. He's gone, right? Uh, eventually, you get the people who seem like they know what they're doing, but maybe don't have good systems or are holding on to ideals that don't work anymore or lose sight of themselves and lose themselves and become just nuts and all sorts well, of other things. You get you get somebody who has so much, you're pulling for them so much, you know they can't go out too early. We think about this like when we're watching uh, Top Chef. You know, you're always thinking about there's the person, there's obviously the clear favorites from the beginning for who looks like they're going to win. There's the clear dinglings. But then there's these people where like you see that like they have the power to like ignite and become your favorite. Like was um Glenn, is that his name? Wait, who's um not Dale, Glenn. Is that his name? The uh the guy with Maggie? Yep. Well, I mean, was he would you have pegged him as a survivor and the guy to watch from fairly early on? Yeah, I mean, he's, it's it's pretty clear that his character at any point i think they still could have killed him but his character was clearly the smart resourceful right. one who you wouldn't think he's small he's not big and muscular his he's not a good shot with like a bow and an arrow or a gun he's not a tough guy but he's he's you know he's right but, but like the like the 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 brunette friend in the slasher movie like she's not going to die in the first reel but no way is she making it till the end yeah right the, the the there's the person who the loss of this person becomes a propulsive like in a typical like three act thing the loss of this of uh, of this particular character often will become Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? Like the loss of this spoilers, but the loss of this one particular character becomes the driver for the last act in a, in a uh, work often. Yeah. And, and as the seasons wear on and as time passes in the show world, like where you're like, okay, this isn't a week later. This is a month later. This is a year later. You start to have an expectation that uh, outside extraordinary circumstances, like the little bubble roll of Alexandria, anybody who you see left at this point, especially if they're in a small group or on their own, has a certain set of knowledge and skills that had gotten to them to this point. And the frustration, especially with the characters that we've been with this whole time, we don't have to assume they have these these skills. We've seen them develop the skills over many, many seasons. The frustration is when you see those characters who you know know how to deal with the rules of the world doing things that you that they would never do. That Like, you're smarter than that. You know not to you know be distracted and argue with your person when there's zombies around the corner you know like don't wander around this this road alone even to the point where like going out on the winnebago with this small group like you know Ugh. don't leave the town entirely so many un- unnecessary so many unnecessary risks this season right and fine unnecessary risks. early seasons you totally expect that because they don't they don't know you know the rules or whatever but everyone who's left on the show whether they're strangers who you just see showing up for an episode or especially our core group these people know how to survive, so they would never do something so incredibly stupid. If they're going to do something stupid, you have to give them motivation. Like, well, they have to do it because someone is bleeding out and they're sacrificing themselves. But 
that's the frustration my wife has where, where it like zombies not that they shouldn't be a threat anymore but they shouldn't be you shouldn't get a stupid zombie death where you're like oh i got distracted for a second and someone bites my arm and that's not a way to go out like if you've been mm. in the show for four seasons you've survived this whole thing you're not going to be that careless like that's why I like when I see them be competent and have a system. Let's clear this. Let's clear this building. It's dangerous. Anything could happen. But you have a system for clearing the building. Why? Because you've cleared a million buildings, and you don't see them like right. we didn't bother to clear the building because we were really tired. We went to sleep and we got eaten by zombies. Like that feels like a a stupid death. So every time you see a, a, someone from an established group do something stupid, seemingly for the purpose of raising tension and raising the stakes in the show, it's like, that guy would never do that. He knows better than that. This group knows better than to act in this way, than to do this thing, than to get on that road, than to go in that car, than to follow that guy. And that is another danger of a long-running show like this, is that you need to get into serious uh, you know, situations where there are stakes, but at a certain point, the people who are still alive are competent enough that their whole their whole competency is about not putting yourself in situations where stuff like that can go wrong. Like to to you don't don't put yourself in a situation where that can happen. Like you know, no right. no when to hold them, no when to the you know what is I don't even know that freaking song. You got to help me here. No when to hold them. No when to fold the gambler. Them. Is the it gambler is, by uh, Kenny Rogers? Is, you're holding and folding. It's the two opposites. It's supposed to be the opposite. Yeah, you're holding the area. No one. Well, to hold I no mean they're. No, I think no it's when a, to it's walk away, no when to run, and they would have. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pipe. Yeah, they would have. At like at a certain point, you feel like with the level of competency they have, they would have realized we, as great as Alexandria is, uh, like why do they not have scouts? Why do they not have people going out? Why do they not have situational awareness? Why are they not in a freaking castle up against the side of a mountain? I don't want to get into this again. Like they're, like right. They're, they're at this point. They're, they should have met enough people and had and had enough skills and training. Like, forget the castle on the side of the mountain. Maybe they haven't introduced that idea that there is a way to make a defensible fortress against both humans and zombies that you are safe in, really safe. Like, military level, you know, you've, the whole world is your oyster. Pick a better situation than a bunch of tin walls around a suburb. Anyway, even just within <laughs> the world, the, the realm of their little world, don't do stupid things. Don't go... When someone leaves and goes off on their own... If you survive for two years or however long they've been there, you know the rule is, as much as you may like that person, don't send off another straggler after them, and then send off another straggler, and then send the pregnant woman, and then send... The- no, yeah, it's and, so stupid. And the, scene, and the scene where, was it Carl sees Michonne? But, like, they're all, they've all gone off this a few episodes ago, where they all go outside the camp, and it's like, you know, none of us are supposed to be out of here, and it's like, don't do that. Like, don't do that. Do not go off and do those little adventures. Yeah, it's. I mean, th- and that's what people find frustrating. They, they, they've seen the characters grow to learn uh, a system, and then they see the characters acting in ways that you know they wouldn't act just because it will put someone else in peril. And then you're mad at them. You're like, well, you deserve that because you should have known, like, don't light a campfire in this situation or don't fire off your gun in this situation. Like, yeah, and, and that's that's a difficulty and that's a frustration that happens with all shows, but you see why it happens. It's because just a little bit of weak writing. You're like, I need to put this person in peril. And you're like, oh, I know how to do that. Have this and that happen. And if you're a viewer of the show, you say, well, that's totally unrealistic because that character would never do that because they learned over four seasons that you never go off on your own. You never, like, turn your back on this. You know, you don't trust a stranger with a knife and, like, all, all sorts of things that we as an audience have learned throughout the show that the characters seem to conveniently forget. And that, I think, is the... Of the things that are going to kill the show is uh, inability to make new characters that we care about, uh, protected bubble around characters so they become invulnerable because they're super important, and characters doing stupid things to further the plot. And as the show goes on, there is a a raised expectation of the competence level of anybody left alive unless they were in like a bubble or whatever for the whole. Yeah, I mean, it's like it would be like if you'd gotten to whatever the 
like a six level monster in D and D, you wouldn't expect like uh, some drow bugbear with magic abilities to fall out of a tree like completely randomly. That kind of screws up the whole story. Yeah. What am I thinking of? American World. Stay on, <laughs> stay on the road. Keep clear of the moors. Mm-hmm. Um. So, what do you want to see happen with Negan and in the next? season or what do you want to definitely ask answer how you want what do you see uh what do you want to not see next next season i feel like the natural progression of the show as it lurches on ever forward is um society's destruction by zombie the the progression is the rebuilding of society in whatever form it's going to take so i think the show has followed this arc and should continue to follow this arc increasingly sophisticated miniature societies and groups um with increasingly sophisticated infrastructure, not just found infrastructure as in we hot wired this car or whatever, but like, like Alexander, we're building walls. We have solar panels We're we're building armies and fortresses. And, and I can't, you know, eventually I assume there's going to be some kind of like rule of law. Someone's going to come up with a society that's sophisticated enough that we actually have to write down, you know, like this, the slow rebuilding yeah. of society. Maybe that's not next season or whatever, but Negan, for example, but, but almost something, almost something like not exactly currency, but there needs to, like it needs to get to somewhere where there's enough abstraction to go beyond staying alive this week, this month. There has to be something where like the stakes go, to a different level with there's a new there is if you like a coin of the realm that they did not mint yeah, who, who, something comes along where and that could be negan it sounds like who run barter town in, i don't know that one yeah that's uh the uh mel gibson mad max movie uh, the the, oh, the latter mel that. gibson mad max movie beyond thunderdome anyway have not seen barter it. towns like like they're they're yeah, building up yeah. to it slow which is a good idea but if you jump right to that it becomes like i don't want to watch a show about like agriculture and like trade and and monetary systems and like i mean getting back to colonial war there are heroes on both sides <laughs> yeah like yeah see and and the same thing like it's not it's not going to be such a slow build up like it's going to be weird that's why it makes the show interesting they're not they're not actually rebuilding from colonial level technologies they there's got to be enough people around who know enough like you know like manufacturing the manufacturing the bullets ideas we can skip lots of levels like because we know how this stuff is supposed mm-hmm. to work even though if it's not working right now um but every attempt to organize is thwarted by the the bad weather of the zombies which are persistent for nonsensical reasons but they are they're persistent the bad weather of the zombies have to be there um and i think that i think that's the other i don't necessarily want to see this but every time i look at the show i think like look setting aside other humans even if you were if your group of people say you got a group of 50 people if your group of 50 people are literally the only humans left on earth so you don't have to worry about the governor or negan or anyone else coming to get you and it's just you and the zombies you've got the problems of food water shelter and then your other problem is the zombies. And I feel like that is a solvable problem. Even with magic zombies that don't die until you crush their head, that don't need food or water, that don't freeze, like, fine. Accept the rules of the thing. You can harvest and destroy all of them with machines like, like, uh, you know, like plants or livestock. It's going to take a long time, but you can both harvest and kill them, and you can come up with, you know, complete defensive systems involving, you know, moats or structures or like bug zappers or whatever mm-hmm. you want to, like you well, can like, solve almost like the way that. they put the pointed sticks on the cars yeah, that, that that's is the worst thing, system you know, ever like i mean i'm not saying you're gonna have it solved. a little bit random i'm not yeah. saying you're gonna have it solved in the first year the second year the third year but like eventually i feel like if you had a group of people who could sustain themselves for a bunch of years it's a solve humans can solve this problem we, we kill all the wolves we destroy the environment we we are masters of the environment we are at the top of the food chain we can kill every other living thing this we figured out eventually how to kill every single living thing on this planet except for maybe some bacteria and cockroaches including ourselves like that's what we're good at we will eventually we could handle these zombies but of course you can't do that you can't have the humans solve the zombie problem on the show so 
I try not to think about that too much, but that is, in addition to the, the rebuilding of society, solving the zombie problem with essentially science and engineering is eminently <laughs> possible and would, of course, kill the show because then, you you know, like you've said, you can't, you've got to have them there as the threat. Killing the magic zombies would, would end the show. But anyway, next season, what I want to see is uh, Rick facing off against, Rick and his group facing off against a group that is different than all the other groups they faced off against. Um, I hope Negan mm-hmm. doesn't just turn out to be a Joker-like villain. I hope they don't turn out to be just a bunch of thugs. I hope what they have to deal with is people in their arguing in their group of like, is Negan so bad? Is he any worse than? Yeah. What, you what know? if what if Negan was not turned out to not be like the Joker and was more like you know a better version of Rick or a more evolved version not, not not even just rick but like you're saying like this becomes super interesting when you get to where well you know negan's a little bit crazy but he's got some interesting things to say right like i mean it's we feel safer than we were in alexandria and i don't think that's where they're actually going you asked me what i wanted to see i think i would be interested in seeing that. i think what the, where they are going uh is much more prosaic i think what they're going to do is assume that the hatred we feel for Negan in threatening our beloved characters. I feel like, I feel like the show has accepted that there is a core of invulnerable characters, which I think is a bad idea, but I feel like they have accepted that, that there's at the very least yeah. a core of beloved characters. And the fact that Negan threatens those beloved characters, like our pregnant Maggie and all that, you know, that it is unforgivable. And the entire next season will be about the slow, careful, clever plotting of revenge from a completely outnumbered group uh, you know, our heroes against the overwhelming odds of Negan, whether that is like arranging a scenario where uh, Negan and his entire crew are taken out by zombies or whatever. The whole idea is like, it's going to be a revenge season where it's like uh, our guys seem to have been defeated and are captive and captors or whatever. Um, but they will, you know, you know, be quiet and docile all the while plotting their revenge. And the culminates the culmination of the season is kind of like in the culmination right. of the governor season is eventual vanquishing of the foes by our clever, resourceful heroes, even though they were far outgunned and outmanned. I have a, I have a stack of mini predictions that are kind of related. Um, I think, I think there's a pretty good chance that um, Rick is not dead. I think, consequently, there is a very good chance that Carl's not dead. Oh, they, they telegraph that it, in the show because they, they said in, in the final scene, they said, yeah. um, cut if, anyone, if anyone makes any noise, I'm yeah. going to cut out that kid's eye and feed it to his father. You can't feed it to the father if you're hitting Rick on the head because he's not going to eat it because he's dead. And if you're bashing Carl in the head to begin with, you can't threaten to take out his eye as, as your threat. So Carl and Rick are the only two we know yeah. for certain are safe. I, that's what I thought. My wife and I disagreed on that, but I agree with you. Um, she, she thought that was about Carl being threatened. Uh, I mean, you know, as the one that would be, uh, get the hell beat out of them or whatever. But like, here's the thing. I'm just trying to follow this little le- these little leaps of logic. I think it's a pretty good chance for a variety of reasons that Rick's alive. If Rick is alive, uh, I think it's a pretty good reason to guess that Carl is alive. Um, and if that is the case, which I think that's a pretty easy couple, very small logical leaps. If it is true that they're both alive, then the relationship with between Carl and Rick, I think, will be heavily tested by whatever happens yeah. next season. I I, I felt like what they were telegraphing there is the reason again on the Thegan. The- I mean, you can't you can't have a you can't have a season of 
not Schindler's List. You, can, you can't have a season of like uprising. There can't be a whole season that's about like, oh, we're going to get out of this thing. Well, I, that, I, that's I think, not going to work for a whole I season. I think you can, especially if there's some dissent about whether you should be getting into it at all or whether there's got to be gonna... some there's got to be some pushback from somebody. And that's persuasive case yeah, not, that makes Rick doubt whether he's got the best system. But it's not it's not going to be Carl doing that. Like the 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 Carl uh, Rick thing, I think, was was, again, on the theory that Negan, as he's walking the line, he's sussing out the dynamic in the group. Right. That's why he makes a big show of like, oh, this is your son or whatever. Once he realizes that Carl is Rick's son, he's like, OK, these two, I've got their number because if I need to control Rick, I just threaten Carl. Yeah. Right. And Carl, I'm not worried about him because he's just a kid. Uh, you know, future serial killer or whatever they're calling him. They're like, he's going to be damaged by this, you know, uh, upbringing or whatever. So I feel like that is about control. It's why, like, leaving Rick alive, if if he had been watching the previous seasons, you should have realized, you know, you should know by now that Rick can never be turned to the dark side. Um, but, uh, or, or at any rate, can never be convinced to follow you, that he's always going to be plotting your death, right? But he doesn't know that, presumably, because he hasn't followed Rick for five seasons. So what he's thinking right. is, Keep the leader alive, because if I need someone to persuade the whole group, if I can convince the leader, the leader can convince the group. And I can convince the leader well, like, like you said, that's, that's part of what this is. Part of this whole display is him sussing out who's who, what's what, and what he needs to do based on what he sees in their eyes. Yeah, and, and, and I get leverage. And I feel like what he's doing with trying to figure out who he's going to kill is, who can I kill that will not irretrievably turn the entire group against me? Like, there's no way back from it. So that's why it's not Maggie, because you don't kill the pregnant woman. And she might die on her own anyway, so you don't even have to do that, right? So that calculus is like, don't kill her. Uh, the husband of the pregnant woman, probably also no idea, so I assume it's probably not Glenn. Um, mm. uh, but, I, I worry that it's Glenn or Daryl. Yeah, well, Daryl, I see, this is why it's difficult to figure this out, because then you just start getting into the writer's heads of, like, I was in Negan's head for a second figuring out who's the best one to kill. Now I immediately go into the writer's head and say, well, people love... And the writer's head love, is like, Daryl has to go out, Daryl's got to go out in a in something more in a blaze of glory, as they say. And people, like, and people love much. him, too. People love him. Like He's like, he's kind of the, he's the Han Solo of the show. Yeah, like, he's... But, like, what about, what about the woman whose name I don't even know? Um... The that one lady, uh, you the, know, the, um, the black woman who's the girlfriend of the the mustache guy. Uh, well, so not not Michonne, not Michonne, not Glenn, yeah. the, the, the the one who's like the younger kind of Latino woman. I oh don't yeah, no, yeah, you can kill her. You can kill. You she's can kill like Mich- the lowest. She's kind of the yeah, lowest. She is the lowest, character. but that's why she's too obvious. You can kill Michonne, um, and that would be like an end to her like budding relationship to, to Rick. Uh, you know who we care about. Like you, you can kill the women to anger the men, which is kind of tired i like i don't think the uh the hispanic woman who was previously the girlfriend of mustache guy you don't go to the bottom rung you can kill mustache guy um i don't think talking about oh you're talking about abraham yeah i don't think i don't think his arc has been that interesting lately and he's been kind of no abraham's gotta abraham's gotta go soon he should have gone by now and he'll he's gotta go soon you can kill eugene because his arc uh, had a had a pleasing conclusion like he could continue on i could totally see eugene making ammunition for him on the sly and him coming out the other end of this but you could also kill him off now like uh, so many people are expendable. I think the only ones who aren't are uh, Maggie Glenn. And and here's the the final thing is uh, again totally outside the show now. He's like, well, uh, maybe Maggie or Glenn uh, got an offer to do another show or are going to be in a movie, <laughs> and so they they need oh to, I know they need to be off. I I purposely don't read entertainment news, so I don't know. Like, oh, she's starring in the new you know. Whatever. This is something lots of people are saying. Is basically you're just going to have to look at snapshots from far away of who's on set you know and piece that together and personally i don't 
that stuff is really gross. I have no desire to follow that stuff. But I did, I did indulge myself because I felt like a weirdo after this. And I, you know, I, I totally hear your case and you made a very persuasive case. I still continue to say, I'm not arguing this well, but I continue to believe that his monologue was super weak and it, it bummed me out. And anyway, at any rate, I, I went and I basically just Googled Walking Dead on Google News over the last couple of days. And you are not alone, my friend. There, are, I mean, I, I don't disagree with you. I think it was totally lame to just have some CGI blood be the end of the season. But like, that's what people are mainly mad about. And now that is what people are going to be collapsing on in the interregnum is like just trying to figure out like, fine, you know, you screwed us out of this season's worth of this mystery that we thought was going to be resolved. And now people are just going to be hunting that down until it comes out. That's a silly thing to be upset about, especially in this sort of binge watching phase, because like it's it's only painful for us because we have to wait till the next season. But think of all the people who are going to watch it sequentially. That's going to be a cliffhanger for the 30 seconds it takes to load the next episode. <laughs> you know, like that's that's the, the new right. world order is that is a, a vestige of people who still watch shows in real time and uh, and don't like binge watch and catch up on seasons like all the uh, i caught up on the flash there was no cliffhangers for me between seasons i just sailed right through like you know if something ends on a cliffhanger just start the next episode and you find out what happens so it it is annoying and it is kind of disrespectful to the audience uh and for all those bad things about it but i'm i'm not burned up about it except the only reason i'm burned up is that i now i have to avoid it's not too hard to avoid but like now i have to avoid all the scholarly research into who because i don't (laughs) don't care i'll find out when the first episode of the next season there i'm fine with that well, I, I just want to say um, quickly that I'm glad when I was getting in the uh, leftovers, you suggested it. I liked it. I was almost at the end of season one. And I think on at least one, probably at least two occasions, you, I think, expressly counseled what you had done because you'd been seeing the show as it came on, which was like you said that the fact that there was a long break between season one and season two it sounds like you were saying that helped you enjoy season two even more because, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Yeah, like I'd almost forgotten the show existed. Like, I, what was that? It was another show I was thinking about that recently. I was going to recommend somebody watch. Oh, no, it was, uh, yeah, Mike at the Movies. I'm thinking of doing Kill Bill, the Kill Bill movies with him. Um, okay. And I, I rewatched them. I'm rewatching some movies to try to figure out which ones I suggest. But if I was to suggest that those to him, what I would tell him is watch the first movie and don't immediately put it in the second movie, which is what I did because mm-hmm. I've seen it a million times before. But I realized doing that like watch the first movie and at the minimum sleep on it go take the next day do work and then like the next night watch the second movie because you need that break it doesn't it doesn't flow together it's not it wasn't made in the era where the expectation is that you're watching these one after the other i know they have the big cut like this one big like three or four hour cut that's all them together and maybe that's cut differently but i like the two separate movies and i like watch the first movie very least sleep on it wait a couple days if possible then start the second movie but to process the first movie and to do the second one because that's how it works best and i don't need you know do you have a big gap in leftovers but i think it's it's more delicious for you to sort of and to let you digest season one because season one is a thing is a thing to digest on its own and just trying to like yeah. let it settle and sort out what you make of this how where do you file this in your mind what do you think of it where is it going what does it all mean does it mean anything is this a show that you even like like just let that settle. Oh, and it, it's so it's so nice to have watched that perplexing, exhilarating, and strange first season of a Damon Lindelof show. To watch it all the way through, get through it, take the break for a few days, come back, and then to land right in S two E one and be like, "What is happening?" Yeah, you know. To, to, but it was like I'm, my wife was kind of like bugged by it at first, but I was already like, you know what? I'm sure this is going to be fine. I, I am bought in. 
Like, <laughs> I don't need to see our heroes for a while. Like, I, I'm, or, or even like I'm, you question whether they're coming back. It's, it's like Kid A after OK Computer, right? Like, like OK Computer, like wow, that was spacey and weird, especially after the bends. And then you're like, you know, boy, that Radiohead, they really know. And then they come out with Kid A. You're like, seriously, there's more. You can go farther. It's like, no, yeah, we we can go farther. Far like keep, we, they keep going until you're uncomfortable. Like, and if you're not uncomfortable yet, just wait. Like, just keep going. I mean, and with Radiohead, I think they've gone so far that, you know, they've they've gone past my range. Like, I have a certain bandwidth for them, and they've, they've expanded. But I totally respect that they're, that they're just going to keep going farther. So, The Leftovers, like, season one is really testing the limits of what, what people will tolerate or expect from a television show. And then you're like, wow, that was a hell of a show. All right, I'm ready for some more of that. And like, no, 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 not more of that. How about this? You're like, no, seriously, there's more? You can go farther? Yes, yes. <laughs> we will go so far that we will make you think you're not even going to see any of the characters in the first season again. That's how far we're willing right. to go. How do you feel about that? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's just, it's so um, it's so assured. I mean, uh, we ended up talking about the whole, this will come out you know, a couple weeks from now, but talking about the whole dust up with you know, text expander and subscription <laughs> stuff. and well, tie, tie this in. Go ahead. Impress me. Well, no. Well, I was just talking about how in this landscape nowadays, with everything being available, saying to Dan, I'm back to work, that with everything being very available and very bingeable, like, I have to say that, like, the number of times I come across something that is, I'm not trying to sound like like some kind of, like, burned out hipster, but, like, you know, it's really nice to find a movie or a TV show where you're like, man... I am so happy that I can still be delighted or I can still be surprised or I can still be just upended. You know what I mean? So like for me, like you recommending the leftovers, um, and you had warned on it, you'd warned about it so heavily. I was ready for it to be like a, like a John Waters show or something. I didn't know what to expect. Like, you know, it's not for everybody. Like I didn't know what it was going to be. I was so happy though about how it went, how unusual it was. Um, not to oversell it, but that movie Headhunters, like I'm way overselling it at this point. But it's just that I still have so much capacity for delight when something comes along that, and what does that have to do with Text Expander? Just talking about like the age of subscriptions and just shovels and all of this stuff coming at us all the time. And like, uh, and how many movies are like so popular because they're part of a franchise or they're a sequel. And I feel like I'm still in like, again, a movie like a like, like Primer or Primer, as you say, a movie like that that comes along just out of nowhere, and you go, like, "God, this movie is so weird." I I can't D- District Nine, another one. Movies that just come along, I, I can't believe this movie got made, and I'm so glad it did, and I'm so glad I didn't get spoiled on it. And I don't know, I just I just feel like it's such a it's such a treasure to find something like that. You kind of can't help but like be pulling in the case of a TV show for it not to go in the way that it could go, to not go the easy way. But like, and then again, you know, Leftovers comes along. So with that second season, you're like, what is this? And I feel like I don't, I want that more. I don't know where to find that, but I, I don't know where to get well, it. That's the, that's but the, I'm always hoping for that's it. That's the, the wonder of youth, the curse of immortality, the, the key to understanding the elves of Middle Earth. So many things. Is that like, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, yeah. the wonder of youth is the only one you may be familiar with in this, in this uh, uh, list of... Guessing uh, you too? Is that you too, guessing? Uh, no, no, like, so when you're young, uh, the, part of the wonder of youth is that everything you see, even if it is an incredibly old, tired trope, is new to you. Right. And so it is fascinating. You've never seen anything like it and becomes emblematic of the entire thing. As you get older and have seen more things, it's not that you so much build up a tolerance is that you've seen this story told in this way so many times. And yet part of it, part of it is that you ascribe to like, oh, it's the, it's the machine and they make all these sequels. And there is definitely truth to that. You can look at the trends and everything like that. But part of it is also just right. that you get older and that you have seen more things. And so 
you increasingly seek out stuff that's weird starts to feel like a certain type of weird where you're like oh that's a that's sure that's a david lynch kind of weird or that's a captain beefheart kind of weird or whatever where you're able to like like even (laughs) even with things that are very unconventional you're able to go oh i get it you're doing alphaville like okay great thanks like you you're able to like uh What's your phrase you use? Pattern recognition, pattern matching. Like you're able to just go like, okay, I see which kind of wackadoodle thing you're going for there. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're putting, you're, you got hash buckets. You're putting it into bins. And what the, the point is, <laughs> you reach a certain age is you are, at the very least, looking for an example of an item that hashes into a bucket that doesn't have too many things in it. Um, like you've seen lots of movies like this, but maybe you've only seen three or four. Whereas you've seen 50 movies like this. And so you put something into the three or four bucket and it feels fresh. For example, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which I'm trying to know nothing about. Um, I know. And, and I can't wait to see. I know it's going to be a Cloverfieldish movie, right? But there's only a few movies in that bucket for me. As opposed to, like, the bucket of, you know, I don't know, like, uh, uh, Swords and Sorcery fantasy movies that I've seen a million of. That bucket is much more full than... <laughs> Than this bucket so i'm gonna put that in that bucket and even people are gonna be like yeah but i've seen a movie like that before yeah but i've seen fewer of them and the same thing with the the leftovers i've seen lindelof television you know i really like lost but it's still a less occupied bucket than the typical 70s sitcom that has a million things in that bucket i don't need anything more to go in that bucket you know what i mean so yeah. right it's not, it's not that we're just seeking out novelty but we're thinking seeking out uh, you said it's is you delight you and surprise you. And I think for that to happen, it has to be either a really well-executed example of a genre that you don't, haven't seen a lot of or haven't seen in a while or is out of fashion or something like that. Or, I mean, there's always the possibility of, like, in the bucket that there's a million of superhero movies. Like, there's a million things in that bucket. We've all seen so many superhero movies, but there's still room for a transcendently awesome superhero movie to you know i mean just look at the force awakens i've seen a lot of star wars movies I've seen a lot of right, movies right. that are like star wars movies but if you make a really good one of those it still works but it's also that you're not looking for some kind of i mean it would be easy enough in in the abstract to have some kind of da da mix and match abstract idea of saying like like what's the most wacky thing you can come up with but i frequently come back to the movies of edgar wright where uh i mean his reinvention of a genre film is so exhilarating to me so like with Shaun of the Dead like what he's doing with the idea of a zombie movie and he's not going to do 10 of them (laughs) that's part of what makes it great and it might not be the greatest movie you've ever seen but boy he's going to do a a zombie movie lovers version of a zombie movie uh, hot fuzz i mean there's so much affection for the genres he's sending up in that but it works on i think on every level it works as a movie it works on a as a, as a meta movie it works as like you know there's so many ways in which that works i think that that's a very high level of difficulty is to be able to take something that is knowing and isn't just ironic and cheeky and dada because any anybody can go just mix it up and make some kind of wayans brothers you know parody with all respect to the Wayans brothers. But, you know, I mean, that, that stuff doesn't have any longevity. Like, how many times are you, you going to go back and watch a parody of, like, Scary Movie? Or a parody, for that matter, of Friday the 13th? Yeah. Like, what are you going to do that's fresh about that? Yeah, and to be fair, that's not what they're going for. And a lot of people, like, not everyone seeks out these. Like, some people just want, and everyone, I, I want it sometimes. Sometimes you just do want the comfort of the thing that you know. Like, it's the same reason both of us watch silly reality shows, even though they are, that bucket has a lot of items in it. And some of them aren't transcendently awesome. But you watch them because it's like right. comfort food and you know what to expect. Um, and for a lot of people, that's most entertainment. They don't want to be 
surprised and confused by movies you know we we're the type of people who if we hear someone saying i watched this movie and it was really weird and strange and i can't stop thinking about it we will seek that movie out like it's the reason i put headhunters i watched the trailer to headhunters and i put it after i saw about a quarter of the trailer i stopped the trailer because i didn't want to know oh too much. god i'm so glad you did and, god damn that trailer i watched the trailer today after watching the movie last night i was furious I mean, it's the very first frame of that with the truck. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, How it, could you show that? I, I debated whether I should continue watching it when I saw that because I feel like this is probably an important scene in the movie. But like, I watched enough of it to know that it has to go in my queue. But other people are not seeking that out. They just, you know, they just want to be entertained. And, and you know, it's we all have this to some degree, whether it's with food. Do you want... Uh, I'm, for example, I'm totally, you know, to, to try to show that it's just not a value judgment, like, oh, the superior people seek out these weird movies. No, 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 no. Like, I do not seek out weird foods. I want food that I know that I like that I've had before. I am not going like, wow, I got to try this food, this restaurant, this style of cuisine. I'm not like that at all. And I feel like that does not make me a lesser person than someone who is constantly trying to find, a, uh, you know, new food crazes and cuisines. I mean, you know, we should all stretch ourselves and, you know, try to try new things or whatever. But I, I want to emphasize that, like, there is no superiority of seeking out new and, and novel kinds of movies or television or books or whatever. It's just people are the way they are. But I think both of us are the kind of person who, like I said, if we hear someone talk about a movie in, in, in certain terms, we're right. going to try. It doesn't We might not like it. We might hate it or whatever, but it's much more interesting to us than a even a fairly good example of something that we've seen a million times. Yeah. And I'm thinking about, like, like... It's so funny. You you have really made me not not you have not made me, but like talking to you has made me sensitized to this idea of like unintentional spoiler esque things, as I've mentioned before. Um, but it, but it's funny because there is something special about getting to discover a movie on your own, where there's so many things I have so much affection for from the '80s and even early '90s that I feel like were my thing because I feel like I was not that many. Uh, steps away from it getting made. It wasn't something I, you know, necessarily, you know, uh, saw as a parody on Saturday Night Live and then went out and discovered. You know what I mean? Like I was there for much earlier near the creation. But, and there's still something very special of getting to discover something when you don't know what it is. And as I frequently cite, that could be things like <laughs> a movie that's actually very similar to The Walking Dead, um, uh, Escape from New York. Like, not a great movie, but discovering that in the middle of the night, I will never forget discovering that movie at, like, 1130 at night when I was supposed to be in bed. And it, I imprinted on that movie so hard. Um, so... Yeah, I, I had the experience with uh, Time Bandits. After I saw Time Bandits, I felt like I was the only person on Earth who had ever seen that movie. Cause it's like I, somebody had, an, like, almost invented a language for you. Yeah, because, A, I'd never seen a movie like that. And, B, like... I was alone when I watched it. I was probably also like late night TV or maybe it was like a video rental. And I was like, none of my friends know this movie exists. I've never heard anyone mention, mention this movie, mention any of the actors in this movie, mention right. anything like this movie. I must be the only person on earth who has seen this. And it was amazing and crazy and wonderful. Like so much more so than like, oh, Monty Python. Yeah. Me and nerdy friends are into Monty Python. Everyone knows Monty Python. But Time Bandits, like, I don't know who Terry Gilliam was. I didn't make the connection. Like, it's just, where did this come from? What is this thing? And it's your own secret treasure until you realize that this guy made other things and uh, you may like them too. And it's a thing. We are running really long. We were both, uh, my wife and I were both remarking on your stamina tonight. Yeah. Well, your stamina is amazing. Yeah, I know, especially since I woke up in a house with no heat. Oh, it's miserable. And it was, wait, wait, let me go back in the text here. 
It's a it was some kind of a pump issue. Circulator. Oh, pump. it was a dead dead circulator pump. Yeah, it's bad. You got you got to circulate oh, the hot. It's not enough to make the water hot. You have to then no. send the hot water to the places in the house. Oh, the that's just the beginning. That's the beginning. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> Miserable. Twenty two degrees in April. Mm. No good. It is sixty nine point six degrees in my office right now. Sixty nine, dude. <laughs> 